All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the first uh, edition of the Saturday Free School of 2021. Uh, wish everybody a happy new year. And we're excited uh, for what Saturday Free School is going to be doing this year. And as always, uh, Saturday Free School is a school for philosophy and Black liberation based in Philadelphia. Uh, today, we're joined, as always, by Dr. Anthony Montero. And uh, the others uh, joining our conversation today are uh, Michelle, Alice, Emily, Meghna, and Jake. Um, today, we'll be continuing our uh, readings of Du Bois's unpublished work, Russia and America. Today, we'll be discussing chapter three. Uh, in the description for this live stream, uh, I've put a link to, to the website where you can download the PDF in case you don't have it. And uh, you can go down to chapter three in that PDF to follow along with our reading, although we'll be reading it out loud. Um, and so uh, Doc would like to say a few words before we get into the reading itself. Yeah, thank you very much, Jahan, and good morning to everybody and happy new year. Um, I just wanna say again, a few things about the free school. And um, you know, sometimes I feel compelled to to always introduce and reintroduce ourselves to people so they can really understand what we're doing. Uh, a lot of people think uh, we're a Saturday free school um, where, where we're just uh, teaching you know, different um, intellectual and academic skills, but we're a little bit more than that. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're far more political than that. We're a, a school of thought, first of all, uh, uh, the other thing is uh, we see ideas as central and the ideological as struggle as central to the transformation of humanity and of human societies. And thus we see ideas as highly political. So we're not um, armchair revolutionaries or armchair intellectuals. We're a part of the rough and tumble of the ideological struggle. Uh, we don't shy away from the critique of wrong ideas and the support of correct ideas, no matter where they come from. Uh, you might be aware of the fact that in the free school, uh, we have followed and, and really are very much involved in, first of all, uh, understanding the independence movement in South Asia and the ongoing struggles in that country and are linked uh, to various progressive organizations in India. Uh, we're also very uh, attached to understanding developments in China, uh, its rise, uh, the new leadership there, uh, and as such, we study Asia and Africa to be certain of being on the right side of history, to being with the revolutionary and progressive forces in history. And we say that in spite of our recognition that we've talked about here many times of the great setback that came about with Gorbachev and that clique of traitors to socialism in the Soviet Union and to the world communist movement, that setback, um, which did tremendous damage to the forces of peace and progress worldwide, 
but we now see a regroupment, a reassertion of the progressive forces on a world scale. And Asia is central to this. And uh, so, um, uh, so you could see what we're doing. Um, uh, as I said, we enter into the ideological struggle. We don't shy away from it. Uh, we don't hide our views. Um, uh, the truth is very important. If trust is to be developed among us as a free school and us with the broad masses of people in Philadelphia and in uh, this society. So truth is very, very foundational. Um, at the core of what we do, and you may have already recognized this, is W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, in many ways, we are unique in this regard. We don't study Du Bois as dilettantes. It's not something where we're reading Du Bois so we can say we, we're smart, we know Du Bois, or we know when Black, uh, uh, The Souls of Black Folk were, was published and Dark Water, or we could quote him. No, we're not dilettantes and we don't see him as, as either a relic of the past or a dilettante or a second rate thinker. In many ways, and this is still a, a point that we have to discuss as we go forward. Du Bois is a central thinker. By that I'm saying his body of work, and I'm gonna kind of say something about that, is central as an ideological force in this time. Uh, we say that without hesitation. Um, we are not idle or careerist academics, and you know what they do, which is pretty much nothing, or empty intellectuals who are for the most part self-serving, who are for hire by um, whoever can pay them the most. And, you know, we see that all around us and uh, it's very disheartening. Sometimes I wonder given the state of intellectual and academic um, uh, life, how students like the ones you see here uh, survive. It's very taxing because uh, at some point you realize the whole thing is a game. And the whole thing is to convince you that uh, imperialism and the rule of the uh, elite in this country is the only thing you have to hope for. Um, we don't see Du Bois as a vehicle to be toyed with, or again, uh, a, um, uh, an instrument to achieve academic success. From the standpoint of humanity as a whole, Du Bois is an important and existential figure for this time. He is not just for black people. He is not just for American people. 
He is a force for humanity. But he is also a revolutionary force. When I say he, I'm talking about his ideas. A revolutionary force that must be made the property of humanity. And um, in our discussions, uh, we, we, we see his relevance to South Asia. We see his relevance to East Asia. Uh, and to us, it's just almost common sense by this point, you know. Uh, it's, not, it's not a hard uh, thing to see. Um, so we're very anchored in Du Bois. Now, um, I just want to say where the current work fits into his later body of work. We're talking about the last 30 years of his life, which is not a small part of his life. I mean, 30 years in Du Bois's life is like three or four lifetimes for most other people, most other intellectuals. Um, but I think we would have to start with um, Black Reconstruction in America, 1934-35, when it's um, produced or published. Black Reconstruction carries the intellectual weight and significance of Hegel's Science of Logic and Karl Marx's Das Kapital. It is not a throwaway um, secondary uh, text. It carries the weight of these two foundational works in the history of ideas. From the standpoint of logic, and I think this is a discovery of the free school, this idea of dialectics through threes, dialectics through triads, which is an irony and an ambiguity. It's like seeing twos through threes or seeing threes through two. Dialectics is binary, is two. But suppose the dialectic is through triads or through threes. And this historical logic is produced by the color line. Without the color line, indeed, the class struggle and the historical dialectic can be seen in twos, in oppositions. But with the color line, new complexities are produced. So we talk about the logic that comes out of Black Reconstruction and new ways of viewing the class struggle, which could not be understood if one were only looking at the European context. So here we're talking about a dialectic through triads. Um, and then that's 1935. And then of course, in 1940, he produces this work called Dusk of Dawn. And its subtitle is very important, an essay towards an autobiography of a race concept. First of all, in 1940, to even formulate uh, something in that way, 
the autobiography of a race concept, which is at the same time an autobiography of Du Bois's lived experience with race, both in his life, but in his intellectual life. This is a very important work. Uh, I would argue it surpasses most of what comes after it in terms of existentialism, analytical philosophy, logical positivism, linguistic philosophy. It anchors sociology and the sociology of race, civilization, and class in world history. Um, we can come back to that. The other thing is the title, Dusk of Dawn. And this relates to the work that we've been reading. The dusk of dawn, the beginning of a new moment, a new moment in history. So Du Bois, and this is at the, he, he publishes this at the beginning of World War II, the bloodiest war in human history. But he sees a way out. And that way out references civilization. Um, and that brings the second work, the third work, I should say, Color and Democracy, published in 1945, and The World in Africa, published in 1946. In the beginning of Color and Democracy, right after World War II, uh, People are looking forward to a new international organization, which will become the United Nations, being set up. And what he says in the beginning is that we can no longer view civilization as European and North American. And European civilization is not the measure to judge humanity. Literally saying, that as India and China and Africa are liberated, new history will begin. Uh, and he says in the world in Africa, the first chapter, the collapse of Europe. Uh, we'll return to that. Europe collapsed, but it did not end. Uh, that's a big uh, question. And then finally, the 1950 work that we're doing, which I think, is a crowning achievement of, of, of summation of world history in the 20th century, although 19th and 20th century, by the way, although it is written uh, or it is finalized uh, in 1950, half of the 20th century. Uh, just, and I'll just end on, I wanna end on this point the 20th century. The 20th century is probably the bloodiest century in human history. World Wars one and two are wars fought in the center of world capitalism. And what we were told is the highest achievement of human civilization in Europe they're called world wars, not only because they were fought over what European nation would be hegemonic uh, 
over world over the world, the colonial world. Uh, but because world powers fought one another, the most technologically, economically advanced nations went to war against one another. The stakes, of course, were high. It was not only would Germany be dominant over France or uh, Russia, uh, but whether or not Germany, this is World War I, would have a major say in how the colonial world, Africa and Asia would be redistributed. So, but out of that war and the crisis produced by that war comes the Russian revolution. Du Bois' historiography when I say historiography, we're talking about his philosophy of history. He will argue that real history begins with the Russian Revolution. But he, and I, I just like to quote something from I think the chapter we're going to read. He said, Russia is a world. Behind is Russia and Europe. Before or going forward is Russia and China. Here meets the past, the present, and what will be. <coughs> By which he is saying that he understood and understands the Russian Revolution as not a European event, but an Asian event. Um, and of course, he'll say some things about China as well. But as the European nations were preparing to once again attack Russia to overthrow the communist government, the Great Depression of financial collapse occurs. And the Great Depression. So here you had the greatest and most uh, vicious and barbaric war in human history leading to the Russian Revolution, maybe the greatest revolution in modern history, followed by the Great Depression, the greatest economic collapse up to that time and up to this time in capitalist history, the world system as it was, was threatened with collapse. Uh, so then you have the rise of fascism in it Italy and Nazism in Germany, committed once again to the objectives that Germany was pursuing in World War I. But this time, the stakes were not just Africa, but now the question was uh, the Soviet Union filled with resources and Asia. So Germany goes to war once again to redivide the world's resources, but here they're going to go through Russia to Asia and then to Africa. World War II is the bloodiest war in history, even more than World War I. And that's because not only the technology of war 
but the philosophy of war, where you didn't just go to war against another army, you went to war against societies and people. And hence, they were genocidal wars. Um, and, and hence, uh, requiring a new racial philosophy, of course, based upon the old racial philosophy. But now the divisions became a little more specific. Slavs and Poles were inferior to Aryans. Jews were inferior to white folk and they were not white. Uh, and this justifies genocide against people. Uh, now, by the time the end of the 20th century, a crisis within the world progressive forces occurs. Uh, and this begins with the rise of Gorbachev and the propaganda in the Soviet Union about democracy and opening up and, and no longer communists, but now we're social democrats. And all of this was a way of setting up the destruction of the Soviet Union and hence the world communist movement. And I've said over and over again, the world communist movement was in the main, the most important force for peace on the planet. In the, the wake of this collapse, two books are written by American academics. One is by Samuel P. Huntington, the, um, uh, the uh, political science professor at Harvard entitled The Clash of Civilizations. And uh, in his Clash of Civilizations, uh, his, the target of this clash was uh, Islamic uh, culture and civilization. Uh, so it targets in the name of civilization of uh, the oil rich part of the planet, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, uh, uh, and these other countries. And it became a justification for war, uh, saying that uh, Islam was a retrograde, backward, uh, even terrorist religion and civilization, producing backwardness, and thus, the US would be justified uh, uh, as uh, Samantha Powers, this uh, US diplomat and Harvard professor and all around scumbag put it that, um, excuse me, um, that um, uh, wars against Arabs and Muslims were actually humanitarian wars liberating Arab and Muslim women, you always have to go there, and uh, Arab societies from the authoritarian rule of, uh, of Islam. Uh, that was one, it justified, it was the foundation of what we call the neocon uh, politics, neocon, neoconservatives, but really neocon means war party. And they're Democrats, they're Republicans, they're independents, they're everything. Uh, the other book, which 
has a larger impact, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the world communist movement. So this man, this academic named Francis Fukuyama publishes a book called The End of History. And the title I think to me was more important than the arguments in the book. It was trying to make a Hegelian argument that history ends when the absolute idea the highest level of consciousness is uh, embedded or manifested in one civilization or one nation. So the end of uh, the end of history meant the end of the class struggle, the end of the struggle for national liberation, because everything would be folded in <coughs> to the ideal of Western democracy and Western civilization. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, but at the onset of the 20th century with the Russian Revolution, Du Bois makes the opposite argument, the start of history. And hence, as we enter the 21st century, the century that we are living the century where we are attempting to make our contribution. We are in the beginning of history, interrupted by the collapse of the Soviet Union, but now being restored. Uh, and, the, and hence, the start of history, of authentic history, the history of the darker races, to use Du Bois's framework. And that framework is not to be taken lightly in the historical dialectics leading to this moment and the politics of this moment. But as we, the people go forward, the ruling elites are haunted by the ghosts of the, 21st, of the 20th century. They fear the 21st century because they have a memory of the 20th century where the system almost collapsed, the world system of colonialism and imperialism and world capitalism almost came to an end, but it didn't. And rather than an end, it remains a momenti mori, a Latin word that means a reminder of death. And I think, and I'll, I'll end here, I know my own politics, the politics of day-to-day -day American life, I guess that level of politics, is conditioned by the contradictions and often antagonistic contradictions that beset the ruling class of this country. I don't want to resolve those contradictions for them. I prefer that they be deepened because to the extent that, for example, the ruling class of the United States is consumed by its own contradictions, to that extent, it becomes more difficult 
for it to extend war and, and, and so on throughout the world. When Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington wrote, they wrote from a standpoint of ruling class optimism. The end of history, you know, uh, like, like Prince used to say, party like it's 1999, you know, happy, 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 you know. Uh, and then, you know, Samuel Huntington, uh, again, a well-known scumbag, targeting uh, hundreds of millions of people only because of their religion, their civilization. So now they are turned back on themselves. And as they are turned back on themselves, they are haunted by the ghosts of the 20th century, of the possibility of systemic unraveling and collapse. And I guess we in the free school, hopefully, not only are preparing ourselves, but others uh, for this next moment, this next stage of human uh, civilization. And so this work by Du Bois is not only important from a historical standpoint, but from my standpoint, is right on time as an explanation of the contradictions and possibilities of the 21st century. I, I think you've uh, put it very clearly and very beautifully why we need to be reading Du Bois. And uh, I, I'm, you know, I actually, I would like to uh, unpack some of the things you said a little bit before we move on to the reading, if that's okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, you, you gave a, a great uh, history and the kind of periodization also of what had happened over the past, you know, 100 to 120 years um, and, uh, and placed Du Bois into them. And particularly, I'd like to ask you about the, how we should understand the last uh, 30 to 35 years. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the counter-revolution, the Soviet Union, how that caused an interruption of this history that Du Bois had started to write about and engage with. Um, and, but mo I mean, most of our lives, most of the younger people who are watching, you know, our entire lives have been this past 30 to 35 years of uh, reaction or interruption, as you put it. Right, um, right. But, and within that, also, there are different stages, which we're trying to understand because we're also trying to understand uh, whether we are in a new stage, uh, entering a new stage. So, uh, I mean, as you said, the uh, beginning of that period was of this, if we could say this 30 year cycle, 35 year cycle was the counter revolution in the Soviet Union and the fall of all the, most of the socialist states in the world. Mm -hmm. And then these important intellectual books, which came out to try to bring the basically there were attempts to bring western hegemony over uh intellectual life all around the world and you know the clash of civilization book and the uh, end of history book right. um, and the clash of civilization book really was used as a justification for what became the global war on terror uh which was not which involved the invasions and occupations of afghanistan and iraq but also the destruction of several states beyond that. I mean, Libya and 
destruction of some states, operations, things which you don't even know about in countries like Niger, the recolonization of Africa, many, many things were done mm -hmm. under that justification. Um, and in that period, pretty much the uh, enemy was the basically the Muslim terrorist was the, you know, the justification for all this from about we could say from about, uh, you know, from that period in the early 90s, definitely in overdrive after 9-11 up until the last couple of years. But then when we look at um, the different strategy papers and things put out by the Pentagon recently over the past, uh, you know, two to three years, they're talking about a shift from U.S. foreign policy being based on targeting, quote unquote, uh, radical uh, Islamic terrorism to being tar targeting these growing powers. They identify particularly Russia and China. Right. And we're it basically admit they're admitting that we're entering a period in which there are now rivals again yes. to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I wanted to ask you, like, I mean, do you see that there's uh, ideological kind of uh, shift or response from the from the, in the U.S. from these uh, ruling elite and their intellectuals towards this new world scenario where they're shifting away from uh, just looking at religion, uh, targeting one particular religion and looking at these new superpowers also, uh, not superpowers, but new global powers emerging. And how do we, how, how will our discussion of Russia and America, I mean, kind of relate to that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, <Or> others <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot, Joe, that's beautiful okay. though. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, a lot of my thinking is highly influenced by you all. Um, I know with, um, uh, with Emily and, and Michelle's work on um, China, the ideological movements within China, with you all on South Asia. This has been very uh, important. And, it can, and in a lot of ways, all of what we're seeing confirms Du Bois' thinking in the middle of the 20th century. Um, but yes, um, I don't think the American ruling class, or let me put this way, the American ruling elite finds it very difficult, if not impossible, to give up. They just, I mean, psychologically, they're unable to see the world except them being dominant and hegemonic. Um, on the other side of the ledger, there is no left of any consequence, ideologically. I'm not talking about size, you know, because in a lot of ways, size doesn't make that much of a difference if you don't have the right ideas. Um, and what we call the left are people running around calling themselves socialists, looking for whatever liberal will uh, uh, recognize them. Uh, be that liberal, the head of a, a billionaire, head of a, uh, a high tech like like Twitter or Facebook, or be that liberal, uh, you know, whoever, uh, a very powerful capitalist or um, uh, politician. So the left is not an independent force. The left is a force dependent upon the dominant forces in the society. It is not, they can say they're anti-capitalist day and night, but they don't act like anti-capitalist. And they don't act in ways that the left uh, 
uh, has acted over time essentially in a way that Du Bois would act. They don't fight for peace. You know, how can you be a left and not fight for peace? Uh, but anyway, as the ruling class <coughs> finds itself ideologically and psychologically incapable of adapting or understanding this new moment, this new restart of what was begun, let us say in 1917. They just can't imagine this world. Uh, so, but then there's not a left to influence the way the masses think. Now, what we do have are organic protests all around the place. And people are angry. They're angry because they're poor. They're angry because their wages are low. They're angry because of this um, uh, depression, which is both COVID-driven, but also it's a part of the cycle of capitalist development. Even if there weren't COVID, I would argue there was going to be an economic downturn. COVID and the normal pattern of crisis, bust and boom, that, that our capitalist economies, um, you know, were, um, uh, was going to happen anyway. Uh, but then here you have this new technologically advanced, politically unified uh, state, some would call it a civilization state, called China. Uh, which is not going to be bullied, has allies in Russia and Iran and, and uh, who knows where else, is at the center of the, of the largest trade agreement in human history, uh, and that is the RCEP, uh, you know, in Asia. I mean, I don't think they can adapt to it. Now, will they plunge the nation? because the world is moving on without them, without the US. And the US doesn't, I mean, the ruling class here doesn't even really know what happened, you know? But the world is moving on, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, but will they plunge the nation into a long dark ages where the culture becomes uh, this commercialized, commodified pop culture, that sexualizes everything, including children, uh, or and so on, just to stay in power. Will they use the technology of Facebook and Twitter and other stuff? A lot of people say, well, you know, this capitalist reset, this fourth industrial revolution is going to save capitalism, and that uh, the whole world will eventually have to adapt to what the United States is doing. Well, that's not true. That's not true. You know, uh, China and Russia and uh, multiple African countries can appropriate the technology or some of the technology from the West without becoming Western. And that's the key thing. I would just add, um, that of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world, six of them are African nations. Uh, hopefully regional alliances 
uh, will develop in Africa. Uh, but the other thing is that there are all these indications of a rapprochement between India and China. I know the people of both countries want it, although there's a lot of emotional feelings about certain things that have happened in the past. But um, uh, where does India go? But to Asia. You know, they can't do a Japan, what Japan did in the beginning of the 20th century, become more Western and more white than Westerners and white people, uh, which left them in a lot of ways civilizationally empty. Uh, that's not an option for India. Uh, so yeah, that's where I would put it. I, I think the ruling class in this country is going to find it extremely difficult to adapt to this new world. But I don't think we will find it at all difficult. And I know, you know, Joe, one of the things that we have tried to say and continue to say to people, look, the immediate thing that, you know, be the Black Lives Matter protest or whatever. Yeah, that's good and that's well and good. But unless you have a worldview, you haven't done anything. Uh, to quote Stevie Wonder, <laughs> you've done nothing, you know? And ultimately your protests will last for a couple of months, a couple of, well, a month is the way it looks these days. And then where do you go? But history has moved forward and it will move forward without you, without America, without the West. And this is why Du Bois is so decisive at this time. And, and that's why I, I, I said, I think I said it in the open, you know, and, and I could be wrong, but I think Du Bois is a major and decisive thinker for this time for humanity because his framework of thinking is humanity. It's not the Russian revolution, as great as that is. His framework is humanity as such and dark humanity as the driving force of world history in this moment. Yeah, it seems that uh, the most that the ruling class can try to do is uh, create uh, confusion yes. and uh, obfuscation domestically among yeah. people here uh, mm -hmm. because its control over the rest of the world is becoming increasingly um, limited. And again, the two things which they've attacked the most are ideology and history. Yes. Um, and which is why Du Bois is so dangerous because he's combining both of those things in such it's, a powerful way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's also what we're going to see, uh, what we've been seeing in Russia and America and what we'll see in today's uh, reading. So uh, unless anyone had anything they wanted to add, uh, shall we get into uh, chapter three? said talk about uh the, the i mean how world war ii had this genocidal ideology behind it yes. and then how i mean this is the logic of western civilization the um like genociding civilizations and then just how to talk about peace in these times it's just this like yes. 
it's just, it's been completely erased. There's no intellectual who talks about peace, who's promoted, or it's not available to you at all. So you just, I mean, and this is the thing about the protests, if they don't have that counter to this very fundamental ideology of like Western civilization, they're just completely a part of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's why Du Bois is and, just- And you know, Meg, and we've been for the last, I don't know how many years, and just working, working, we in the freeze, working on this question of civilization, of class and civilization, race and civilization, that nothing is unto itself, you know, as in a thing for itself. You know, you get a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, leftists so-called, who articulate a, a quote, purity when it comes to the class struggle, as though class struggle and class were things in themselves. And this is Du Bois, all struggles are quote, things for humanity. What is its function in advancing humanity? That's, and that's where Du Bois rises to the level of a historic ideological force. Is it for humanity? You know, I'm not one of these quote Marxists uh, who are so quote pure when it comes to the class struggle that I do not understand the relationship between class struggle and civilization, class struggle and race, class struggle and humanity as such, class struggle and the fight for peace. I agree with you, Megna. And that is why so much of this is so empty, you know, and it comes off as dilettantism you know, like playing at revolution while knowing that for real, for real, you don't even understand what you're talking about. We can go further into that, but. Uh... Okay, should I start reading? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we're reading chapter three today, which is on page 52 of the PDF. Chapter three, Blind Staggers, 1917 to 1936. Sitting in Moscow on my arrival, August 28th, 1926, I was reading the New York Times. It said, revolution has broken out in Kronstadt. Streets are flowing with blood. I stared in astonishment for the issue was dated the very day I had landed in Kronstadt. One can know what Kronstadt looked like when I landed by reading page 20. The dispatch was dated from Riga. That explained much. Riga was in Latvia, just south of Estonia, but 50 miles from Lithuania. These three states of Clemenceau's cordon uh, sanitaire, whence European big capital would one day reconquer Russia. Thus Riga had long been a nest of liars who poured fairy tales about Russia into the West. Even I had known that and how could the times be misled into printing the story without confirmation. I went back in my own mind to what I had known about Russia since the revolution 
and remembered that I was astonished to learn how long the war had lasted in Russia after the armistice. Leaving Russia in October 1926, I tried after my return to America to collect and organize my knowledge and read neglected books and reports. The result was amazing. I presume in all our knowledge, something like this takes place. Save in some narrow file, we know events and situations vaguely from newspapers, magazines, or a book or so. But soon we are making judgments and coming to conclusions not on a basis of carefully garnered knowledge, but on flimsy generalizations influenced tremendously by current public opinion. Thus, we tend to learn our history backwards. Mm. I had known that Tsarist Russia naturally resisted the revolution, but of the extent of that counter-revolution and of the active help in manpower, material, and arms supplied by the civilized world of the spying and intrigue from all Europe which had accompanied and inspired this war of reaction, I had but the vaguest information. Indeed, I did not learn the whole story until Sayers and Khan published their great conspiracy in 1946. What amazed and uplifted me in 1926 was to see a nation stoutly facing a problem which most other modern nations did not even dare to admit was real. Taking inspiration directly out of the mouths and dreams of the world's savants and prophets who had inveigled against modern industrial methods against the coexistence of progress and poverty, against slums and disease, this new Russia led by Lenin and inspired by Marx proposed to build a socialist state with production for use and not for private profit. With ownership of land and capital goods by the state and state control of public services, including education and health. It was enough for me to see this mighty attempt. It might fail, I knew, but the effort in itself was social progress and neither foolishness nor crime. Russia was handicapped by 95% of illiteracy among her peasants and nearly as much among her working classes by a religion led by a venal and largely immoral priesthood dealing in superstition and deception and, and rich with the land and loot of groveling followers. Most of her industrial capital was owned by foreigners whose only interest was the 50 or 75% which they reaped from merciless exploitation. Her government had long been shot through with dishonesty and graft under dissolute nobles and fawning lackeys. Her punishment of crime and independent thought had long affronted the civilized world. Yet the best people of Europe and America seldom raised a finger of protest but fawned on Russian royalty and aristocracy, receiving them with open arms and loud sympathy when they were repudiated. Now, after this first glimpse of Russia, I traveled home. I had made a great pilgrimage, the sort of journey of which one dreams. I had seen the Schwell at Antwerp and the paintings of Rubens. I had seen the towers of Cologne, the Rhine and the Lorelei. I walked by the Rathhaus of Frankfurt and through the Thuringienwald to the Wartburg of Luther, through Berlin and its Tiergarten. I had gone by the Baltic Sea to the Nevsky Prospect and the Winter Palace. For me, the red flag had waved above the Kremlin, the slow boats have moved down the Volga, and the Great Fair had opened at Nizhny Novgorod. 
Down the Dnieper, I had found the Black Sea. Now I turned backward toward home. Going, I saw glimpses of the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome, the foundations of that European culture into which I was born, foundations now in semi-ruin. Along the Bosphorus, villas of tarnished splendor and semi-tropical trees appear. They cluster and climb the hills to white and brown walled terraces. There comes a narrow pass with towers mighty and crenellated. The strait opens its beautiful arms and in the evening sun bursts the domes and minarets of the city, Constantinople. The city glooms and shines with six immense vast domes and 16 minarets. House on house piled like fortress walls rise on the right and on the left Asia. I have never seen a city like Constantinople. It is magnificent and terrible. It is a microcosm of human life, writing all its startling beauty and repulsive cruelty. The great sweep of its domes bulging toward heaven, its hills, its rivers and seas, its crowded harbor and more crowded streets all give to its 2,500 years of history a vividness and measuring which gatherings of men in millions possess. I walked the walls of Constantinople. I have seen the walls of Moscow and Nuremberg, of Carcassonne and Granada, but never such gigantic walls of defense as the wall of Theodosius, great wall and underwall, deep moat and massive square and hexagonal towers. They defended African and Asiatic culture against German and Slav barbarism for a thousand years. Vast and grim was the long, long lonesome sweep of stone interlaid with blues and brown, in part now cracked and falling, but enough by another thousand years. Yonder lies Thrace and Hungary and Europe and Kiev and Norgorod, long lonesome worlds of men. I quailed before the city. I could get no idea of it. Its infinite winding streets were baffling. It was a great and unknown giant. Then I went down to the Golden Horn and the teeming streets of Stamboul and putting my shoes from my feet stood beneath the dome of holy wisdom. One great curve sweeps above the immensity of the church and looms 170 feet above the soft carpeted floor. It is a singular and mighty thing. 40 windows light it and the dome itself rests on four tremendous arch arches. There are four vast pillars and arcades forming perhaps the most wonderful single building in the world. For 15 centuries, this thing has risen, trembled, swayed, and grown in the golden light of its old and holy beauty. It is right for men in bare feet with outstretched hands and moving mouths to touch their foreheads in its dust. Can I just say one thing? He's describing the great mosque of Constantinople. Um, this is very, you know, and he says that Constantinople or Turkey or the Ottoman Empire, as it was once called, is this point of intersection of Europe and Asia, or Asiatic and Afro-African uh, civilization. So this is what he is doing. He's on the edge of Europe in Turkey uh, after having left the Soviet Union. This is so interesting. I just want to make that point. 
Yeah, actually, that one sentence he said, here were the walls, to the left was Asia, because literally this uh, city is like the last city in the continent, part of Europe, and then after that is Asia, it's a bit of Turkey, yes. which is in Europe. And, and so, can I just, if you don't mind, if I could just say, this, see, here is Du Bois, here is a worldview, here is an epistemology that sees Asia and Africa and Europe, he sees civilizations, but not just civil, but I just want to make that point. It is so beautiful in the ways that he describes uh, uh, the cities of, uh, of Europe, especially of Italy as well. And he is not uh, uh, insensitive to the great beauty that human civilizations have produced, but also the barbarity that it required to produce this beauty. I had one wide look over all the burning beauty of Stamboul and Persia and Galatia, Galatia to Scutari and the wild rocks of the Principio of Wilson and Trotsky, the golden horn and the Bosphorus, the Propontis and away in the distance, the shadow of the Hellspont. But all day the great golden isle of scent, scent wisdom screened in my soul. I saw the scarcophagus of Alexander the Great and beyond Scutari, where skilled slaves of European capital toiled cheaply and quiet. Beyond them, a city of the sleeping dead, high above the golden horn beneath ancient cypresses. Yonder the 10,000 Greeks came to barter. We passed through the hellspawn in starlight, the water dark silver, the sky deep in blue, the land black and heavy, high Europe and wide Asia, and across the cortege flew Hero and Leander, Xerxes and Mohammed, Lord Byron, the Turkish host, and armies of Russia, England, and France. Above us hung the ruins of Abydus. Then came the night, the bear, the Pleiades, and the Milky Way shone joyously and lingeringly the day arose again on the Isles of Greece. Achilles and Patroclus lie in long last sleep. How well I remember stumbling through the mighty lines of Homer. Minen aid thea, peleado laus. Yonder hidden to the left sleeps Troy, beyond is Olympus, garland, garlanded with snow. Lemnos comes on the right hiding, Samothrace, and on the right we leave Gallipoli, where 10,000 British boys were murdered in 1915 for nothing. Murdered and died by the blunder of Winston Churchill. All this by faith I see beyond the old Aegean. The real and soft morning light looms golden Euboa and Andros. We are the, amid the Cyclades, but empty, empty, barren and dead to all the sweet song, the myriad tongues, the plying boats, the teeming tarred to the past, dead and why? No land that lived and breathed like Greece and lesser Asia needed to die, but any nation that sins against the Holy Ghost must die if truth lives. We thread the Cyclades, past Chios, and before us lies Greece, there but beautiful rise the blighted hills and mountains of Patica in the morning sun. 
We slept towards Salamis, we swept towards Salamis and the Perius to see the pale and deathless Parthenon peering through, to see the rose-colored columns of the temple of Jupiter and the Acropolis. It was all pitiful and forlorn in its torn and raped beauty, baked and burned and yet eternal in the perfection of the dream that built it. The theme, the theme was simple and quiet in its restraint, yet bold in the grandeur which conceived it on a hill amid mountains with backdrop of seas and all about memories of Thebes and Thermoplia, Ulysses, Ulysses and Hymetus. The marketplace where Demosthenes talked stands rough like Paul, the Dionysian theater crouched low to listen to a Squeus, Euripides, and Sophocles. Aeschylus. <laughs> Athens was a dead wrath of white dust, hot and sweltering, and through it poured refugees from war in Turkey. Tall black mountains grimly escorted us through the canal and into the Gulf of Corinth by the heaped mast of the Peloponnesus. Uh, with Pladia and Mycenae and other mighty names all about us. The night bell toiled for Ithaca and with morning came Italy. It had been 33 years since I had seen this land. Again, I glimpsed beautiful faces and white towns as we sped by uh, Brindisi, saw sea and Apennines and came to the Bay of Naples. Vesuvius wore the wreath of smoke but gone was the gaiety and the laughter of Santa Lucia. I was whisked to a fashionable suburb and tucked into a grand hotel at fabulous rates. The trains were, quote, running on time, and the beefsteak was English. But in the little day I stayed, I searched in vain for the old, carefree, dirty, jolly Naples. In its place, the world was marching in uniform, officers strutting, soldiers quick-stepping, even boys parading. The Farnese Hercules was still there and the room of Titians. I saw Capri hiding beneath a broken backed rock in the rock as a hole in the hole the sea blazes blue, writhes and seethes and blazes blue. And now it is done. The blue sunset is dropping toward a sea of molten lead. Capri rises back and cloudly sharp and cloudy sharply limbed against a Sorrento green and gold shines with the soft sheen of evening. A sullen rock with the cross, which was not meant. Castles old and high perch on its edge of heaven. Ships with silver sails go reverently home. Oh, I have sighed, sighed to rest me, sings the orchestra. The breath of Vesuvius spreads rose colored above the purple bulk of the long low mountain and then it slips up into gray pink and golden clouds and wraps the skies in veils and scarves and mists and the sun changing is orange burnt and sudden in the sky Vesuvius is solemn and its waving veil is sinister until it strikes high heaven in the sun now Capri fades and Sorrento is hard and sharp against the sky the Bay of Naples fades and dies, then lives in a long string of topaz lights, which run in a great circle from Pazul to where Pompeii was. 
What was wrong with Greece and Rome that they died and fell? Here modern science on which we stand today was born. Here beauty found rare expression which still sets ideals today. Yet grace is bare, eroded, ruined, and poverty-stricken and diseased. Italy is crime-cursed, sick, and wretchedly poor. We got science and art from these beginnings, some unsurpassable heights of culture were reached, which built upon and not wasted, might still guide and enrich us. Here faith in man and his destiny hurled great monuments to heaven and bore honest, keen, self-sacrificing servants of the common good. What happened? I see faith, which is pragmatic hypothesis going blindly and bravely and all unselfishly ahead and science, which is knowledge reaching the rough and guiding hand until impatient faith breaks away and lurches toward lurches forward to doom, war and hate. This is very interesting. Everybody said it's almost poetic and allegorical. An allegory is an extended metaphor. So he says, what happened to Greece and Rome when they produced all of this culture and civilization? And why, you know, Greece is poverty-ridden and, and Italy is filled with poverty and prostitution and everything else. And he says, you know, science and knowledge should have saved them, but why didn't it? This is the question. So let's see how this works out. <laughs> I wonder if Aristotle and his logical building of his city on a substratum of slaves and barbarians did not make the initial mistake which formed the morass into which the world floundered and which made Rome a slave empire and forced the Renaissance to give birth to slavery in the new world. Does everybody see where we're going? Mm -hmm. this, yeah. So that the vi victory of Samothrace and the Moses of Michelangelo gave birth logically to black slavery in America and the industrial revolution in Northern Europe. Out of this conception of a slave supported society, we must emerge. The United States had opportunity but refused it in the reconstruction after bloody civil war. Perhaps Russia is groping for the way out for a civilization that will not die of its own contradictions. It must and perhaps at least try to place beneath a new conception of culture, a foundation of mass participation in civilization, which Greece never conceived, Rome thought impossible and Europe and America dreamed of, but seldom tried to realize. As I range forward in space and backward in history through the mad ruin of this grandeur and bleak desolation of breathtaking beauty, as I foresee in France and England, New England and California, the same awful metamorphosis, my mind struggles to unravel the reason beneath and the cure above. How could I best pause to see this and now to write it, hurrying as I was through a world staggering blindly between two wars that in ferocity and sheer human depravity spelled one of the ends of time. Okay, just I want to, uh, just that phrase there, end of time. Um, uh, uh, you know, two wars, he's talking about the two world wars, sheer ferocity and sheer human depravity spelled, and he says, one of the ends of time. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a, an interpretation for, I just want to underline that 
as a as this way that Du Bois writes and thinks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just want to say that. But precisely for all these reasons, I must see the world as I turn home between the daring experiment of Russia and the Western world where modern freedom was born. Through the fading fires of Greece and Rome, I came back to reinterpret to myself my native land. At Naples, I boarded the magnificent liner of the Italian line built for the luxury trade of rich America. Although I had ordered a second cabin passage, the polite management had reserved a single first class cabin on the theory that no American was too poor to afford that, even though black. It left me practically bankrupt with the baffling problem of sufficient dress shirts. But one martyrdom I was spared. Indeed, I suppose that in half the cases where all my life I have expected discrimination, I have been disappointed. It has not happened. This made it, however, not sweeter in the other half, where it dropped relentlessly with silent and bitter insult and cruelty. In this case, a Harvard man of all folk and his family made my trip most enjoyable. And the boat was a dream of luxury and taste here on the eve of world disaster. I returned to America late in 1926. Normalcy and Harding, the president in whose Negro descent I firmly believed was dead. In his place reigned the colorless Coolidge a man of my own thrifty New England who knew as much about the world as any narrow, untraveled, and unread provincial. He and his powerful industrial backers had beaten La Follette, honest but hesitant hope of the liberals, in 1924, and now Coolidge was set to collect foreign debts and raise the tariff to unheard of heights so as to make payment of the debts impossible. To beat down the prices of farm produce, Steal government oil at Teapot Dome and chase the murderous liquor gangs to jail for failure to pay income taxes. War was merrily, quote, outlawed by the Pact of Paris in 1927. The country was literally seething with prosperity. Wall Street gambling was reaching new heights of audacity, and all the old stick in the mud rules of investment were being broken. Stocks yielding 6% were selling on a 10% basis because the golden age was a coming with America in the saddle. But my little business, the crisis magazine, which is paid for by low wage black workers was losing ground. Its subscribers were out of work. Perversely, I assumed that the fault lay in me and that I was not satisfying my readers. What was happening in the world? The United States was blissfully unaware that anything was wrong that could not be cured by quick return to 19th century methods of government and industry. What could happen to a great, rich, unconquerable land like ours? Coolidge did not, quote, choose to run, and no one chose to have him. We proceeded to elect a new president on the incidental question of whether a Catholic could fit could sit in the White House and also as to whether Negroes had any political rights. <laughs> Those, you know, what he's saying is we're on the cusp of the collapse of Wall Street, the greatest financial collapse in the history of capitalism. And uh, the presidential election was fought over whether or not a Catholic could be president and whether or not Negroes should have the right to vote. A triviality as it were. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> the Negro vote was so completely ignored that the leaders of the race complained bitter, bit, bit, bitterly in deaf ears. Bitterly, I'm thinking it bitterly. Herbert Hoover was elected president and Hoover looked just like the type of businessman to restore and rebuild industry after what all Americans believed to be the last war, which modern civilization would permit to interrupt trade. Herbert Hoover had made money as an engineer out of the cheap labor of China, Mexico, Australia, India, and South Africa. Early in the new century, he had invested heavily in 11 Russian oil concessions and in companies to exploit timber and minerals in the Urals. He shrewdly sold out, however, before 1917, when these various concessions were confiscated by the Bolsheviks. Naturally, he became a bitter enemy of Bolshevism, which he said was, quote, worse than war, end quote. When he became United States Food Administrator in, the 19, in 1917 to 1919, he distributed nearly all of the hundred millions which he handled among the armies and people who were fighting the Russian Revolution. Later, as Secretary of Commerce, 1921 to 28, he was a well-known enemy of Russia. With Hoover as president, there was no hope of the recognition of the Soviet Union by the United States. But no sooner was he seated in the White House than suddenly in 1929, the industrial organization of the United States crashed in unprecedented ruin. I had by this time decided that my work as editor of the crisis was no longer demanded. Quite unconsciously, I had absorbed from my day the fashion of gauging usefulness and need by profit. If an enterprise was profitable or an undertaking was paid for by the consuming public, that proved its worth automatically. If and when it did not pay, it was not needed. Such reasoning was idiotic as I soon came to realize, but also I realized that when my own effort could not longer make this periodical pay, then those who thereafter helped support it had the right to determine its policies. This latter fact hastened my change of work. I was sure that the propaganda era of my life was at an end and that now at the end of my life, that was 21 years ago, I was 60, 61. I was justified in retiring from public agitation and devoting myself again to social investigation and peer literature. The urge to do this was all the stronger because opportunity offered to work with a friend. At the center of the Negro problems is the state of George in the state of Georgia, and to be paid a modest salary of 4,500, which was sufficient for my needs. I prepared to leave New York and the NAACP, and the deepening gravity of the crisis hastened my going. So that in 1934, I was at Atlanta University. Naturally, my interest in Russia kept up, however, and I was increasingly disturbed by the news. I did not, however, place reliance on the American press as I had formerly. For instance, the reports of famine and trouble with the peasants did not alarm me. I expected no miracles in Russia. I knew that she had but embarked upon a momentous and revolutionary social program, and that from its inherent difficulties and those deliberately placed in its path by the Western world, she was bound to have a difficult path. Moreover, from our custom of glorifying war, 
stopping with, quote, victory, and then utterly ignoring the frightful recovery from murder and destruction and maiming in limb and morals, I knew that few persons criticizing Russia had any idea of her utter prostration from 10 awful years of foreign and civil strife. What happened in Russia during the 20th century? The phantasmagoria, which engulfed the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1936, is almost impossible to picture clearly or concisely. I was long grasping this intricate story and I essay its outlines now with a certain trepidation. This vast land, one sixth of the globe stood at the threshold of the new century, a miserable travesty of government and culture. Long revolutionary reaction, open and underground had shaken the land during the 18th century and the 19th. It was jolted to new life by the industrialization of Russia late in the 19th century with French, Belgian and British capital. On the right stood the nobility and high clergy, in the middle were the businessmen and at the left were the social democrats. Left of the left came the Marxists. Three men, all under 50, led the Russian Revolution of 1917. Vladimir Ilyich Yulanov, known as Nikolai Lenin, planned it. He was the son of a school inspector and of the daughter of a small landowner and was born in East Central Russia. Joseph Vissarionovich Jugashlevi, known as Joseph Stalin, carried Lenin's plans into execution. He was the son of a shoemaker and grandson of a Georgian. He knew the workers of the Russian Caucasus and their problems. Lev Davidovich Bronstein, known as Leon Trotsky, was the brilliant idealist of the revolution who both inspired and betrayed Russia. He was born out of, he was born of well-to-do Jews not far from Odessa. There were many other leaders, but these were outstanding. Lenin was the man of wide reading and sound learning, who took the Marxian theory of socialism and by long scientific experimentation of trial and error, adapted it to living and working Russia. Stalin was the slow, cautious, but keen executive who knew the common laboring masses of many races and religions. He took the theory of Lenin and translated it into reality with grim steadfastness, self-effacing sacrifice, and unswerving determination. Trotsky was a brilliant propagandist and dreamer of dreams. In the stress of battle and trial of endurance, he could not distinguish between his own ambition and the sacrifice demanded by principle. He helped organize the Red Army and then sold his fatherland to Germany nearly betraying his fellow workers to the rulers of world industry. Lenin, one of the greatest men in the century, was a social scientist. That is a man who believed that the deeds of human beings were subject to natural law and that this law could be discovered and its action measured. Others like Comte had, a forecast, had forecast a sociology to develop along with physics and biology, but practical reformers in religion balked at the concept. A real science of human action would deny freedom of the will. It would contradict moral responsibility and acts of God 
It was, quote, materialistic. Okay. Now, you see what Du Bois, this, this goes back to chapter one. And so uh, he is going, Du Bois is going to have to confront uh, the question that, as we put it earlier, between freedom and necessity. Necessity meaning that human events are governed by laws, i.e. natural laws, in the same way that physics and biology and chemistry are. But uh, the question is, where in this law-like development of things, society and history, does uh, freedom come, human agency, human intentionality for good or evil, good or bad come? So let's see how he works this out. Doc, is it okay if Alice finishes reading? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I was going to thank you so much. You just... no, no, thank you. Yeah, wow. Okay. Uh, a real science of human action would deny freedom of the will. It would contradict moral responsibility and acts of God. It was materialistic. But Lenin was not the sort of modern sociologist who boasted of his science and did nothing to discover its laws. What laws govern human action? Lenin did not know nor pretend to know. Before Wing uh, Karl Marx, he saw the rhythm of history and determined to plan human life in accord with no knowledge and on such scientific hypothesis as he found would work. He stood ready and eager to revise and restate in the light of experience any hypothesis or theory he might hold. He therefore studied not only the written word of history and economics, but the actual current deeds of living men. He knew the lives of the masses. He admitted that much, which men did, did seem spontaneous and unconditioned and a matter of chance. But he was determined at least to measure the limits of this chance and beyond those limits, if limits there were, to plan the actual lives of men. Chance is what I just called freedom. Uh, du Bois, in, in an essay, I think in... Uh, 1908 uh, called uh, Sociology Hesitant talked about uh, law and chance. Chance is the intervention of human consciousness, human agency, human intentionality. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, that's what he's getting at right there. Uh, and he's saying quite interestingly that Lenin did not know uh, he did not have absolute knowledge of or predicted or absolute ability to predict what was going to happen. Uh, the revolution occurs within a very fluid situation. Uh, uh, if I could just say, Du Bois will use this phrase, uncaused causes. Uncaused causes, uh, where the laws of society break down and do not behave as predicted or as thought they would. Because most hypotheses or theories of society, be it Marxist theory, the theories in Dust Capital, are generalizations, they are abstractions. But you only really come close to the truth in practice, in the actual day-to-day -day life. And so you can see this complex way of thinking that Du Bois is introducing here. I just wanted to draw your attention to that.
It was this pragmatic approach to human action, either in government or revolution, that set Lenin apart from and above his followers and contemporaries and explained his life. Right. While yet a student, Lenin spent five years in exile in Siberia. Then he went to Western Europe to study and organize an effective socialist party planned by Lenin in the All-Russian Congress of Social Democrats. His attempt at Brussels and London in 1903 resulted in division into Mensheviki and Bolsheviki, the right and left of the revolution. Lenin was overborne and after two years in Switzerland, returned to Russia late in 1905. Meantime, far in the East, Stalin was working among the laborers of Baku. The British trade unionists described how these workers lived. During the investigation of the oil fields of Baku, we were amazed and disgusted with the conditions of housing the workers which had formerly existed under private control. The living places were not huts. To attempt to dignify them with the main of houses would be wrong. And the nearest description we can give is outhouses one finds in the worst slum areas at home. Long rows, rows of dimly lighted buildings, one story high, with small windows and low built doorways, and in some cases, no flooring but the hearth. In these hovels, hordes of people of various nationalities had been housed under such conditions that would subject the owner of cattle in our country to prosecution for cruelty. We have no hesitation in saying that these conditions of housing the people um, were the vilest and worst we had seen in Russia or in any parts of the world known to any of the delegation. When we remembered that the output of oil from this district can be counted in hundreds of millions of pools and that millionaires have been created in abundance from these oil fields, our indignation and disgust at the treatment of the workers was unlimited. Stalin was inconspicuous, cautious and taciturn. He was expelled from the theological seminar, which seminary which he had entered and found work as a clerk. He became a socialist leader among the oil laborers, inspired demonstrations and strikes, wrote, wrote leaflets and contributed to socialist papers. He was neither quick nor brilliant. He was more than that, slow and tireless and loyal. He saw the oppression of Poles, Finns, Jews, Georgians and religious sects. He followed the plans of Lenin as technical executive, not mere propagandist working in the gathering of hard facts. He sought methods of action to implement revolution. By 1901, at the age of 22, he was organizing the workers in the oil works owned by the Rothschild interests and was arrested and spent three years in prison. Stalin escaped from Siberia in the turmoil, in the turmoil marking the opening of the Russo-Japanese War and went back to, to the Caucasus where he helped in the oil workers strike, helped in the oil workers strike, which anticipated the Petersburg revolt of 1905, and which resulted in the first collective agreement between workers and employers ever signed uh, in Russia. The Tsarist led let the Black Hundred loose on socialists and Jews, and soon had the Caucasus writhing in interracial feuds. Here, Stalin learned his great and never to be forgotten lesson of the dangers of race hate, which stood him in good stead during the years when he was com commissar 
of nationalities. He wrote vigorously against the Tsar and took the side of the Bolsheviks until his work came to the attention of Lenin. The two met in Finland in 1905 and Stalin was surprised to see his great leader so small of stature and so modest. The third member of the revolutionary triumvirate, Leon Trotsky, arose with the abortive revolution of 1905 after exile in Siberia. The crazy government of the Tsar was riding to its doom. In 1904, it went to war of Japan and was on the way to defeat before the end of the year. Distress spread among the workers of Russia and in 1905, the workers of St. Petersburg, unarmed, led by a priest and carrying icons, marched to the Winter Palace of the Tsar with a humble petition. They were shot down in cold blood. Revolt flamed, it was not planned revolution, but sudden angry reaction. Strikes spread from Petersburg and Moscow to the whole, to the whole country. A Grand Duke was assassinated, the crew of a battleship mutinied, and workers' organizations called Soviets began to spread. The Petersburg Soviet became the spectacular center of this revolution and elected Leon Trotsky as its president. Trotsky had attended the London Conference in 1903, where he sided with the opponents of Lenin. When the Japanese defeated Russia, he hurried back to Petersburg and led the Petersburg Revolt. He was in his element. Brilliant, fury, and daring, he roused the workers to wild enthusiasm, and the revolt reached its climax in an armed uprising in Moscow in June 1905. Meantime, the Tsar wavered, granted civil liberties, and a Duma in 1905, arrested Trotsky in the same year, called and dissolved a second Duma in 1907, and then put down the Moscow revolt in a flood of blood. Lenin hurried back to this general rehearsal. The re attempted revolution failed and Lenin returned to Geneva, prepared to wait, if necessary, 20 years, unless Sardom is shaken by major war. Meantime, reaction in, in Russia triumphed. All four of the Dumas were dismissed by the Tsar and most of the socialist deputies sent to Siberia. Uh, let me just say a couple of things. This is uh, known as the revolution of 1905. Uh, there was not any you know, real leadership of it, but it was an angry, spontaneous uprising, which lasted for some time. And the czar made certain concessions saying that, all right, we'll set up a Duma met, it was like a parliament, what we would call a Congress or a parliament. So he allowed a Duma to be set up, which actually didn't have any power. And by 1907, had uh, the, the czarist regime had attacked it, sent all the leaders, leaders uh, to jail, the socialist leaders to jail, and ended the parliament. Je uh, Lenin called this a dress rehearsal for 1917. It was a you know when they call a teach a teachable moment, so to speak. The following years, Lenin described as the years of education for the working group. They learned not only to attack, to attack, but to retreat. By 1912, the revolutionary forces began to revive. Tsarist Russia entered the First World War as a method of stopping revolution. Hmm. Succeeding that. Revolution at home. Oh, you want to you want to defeat a revolution or rebellion? 
create all of this uh, a patriotic feeling. Mother Russia is under attack. We have to go to war. We don't have time for rebellion and class struggle. You see what I'm saying? In the West, most of the socialist parties went along with the war, you know, and thus nationalism over internationalism. But succeeded only in revealing the utter incompetency of the government. By 1916, the nation was <clears throat> and the Tsar abdicated in 1917. After a vain attempt of, of a provisional government to rule, the, revolutionary, the revolution of October 1917 put the power in the hands of Lenin. What happened? The Bolsheviks, now become the Communist Party, seized power and established order and made peace of Germany at the cost of much territory, but at the insistence of Lenin, who saw no alternative. The Germans demanded Finland, the Ukraine, Poland, and the Caucasus together with indemnity. Lenin frantically appealed to Britain and the United States, but got no answer. Finally, he accepted the treaty, while we Americans called the Russians butchers, assassins, madmen, scum, beasts. In 1918, banks, insurance, mines, and railways were nationalized. Foreign debts repudiated, and foreign trade made a state monopoly. Western Europe had transferred to Russia as investment before 1905, certainly 10 billions, perhaps 20 billions of dollars worth of machinery, goods, and technical services. It had in turn received back in processed goods, food and materials and labor of all sorts, probably far more than the original investment. It is unfortunately impossible to know these facts accurately and with confidence because the matter of investment and ownership of property property is legally and by custom so largely secret. When the Tsarist regime was overthrown, the foreign investors feared to lose all their rights of property and they backed reaction to put down the revolution. But the Bolsheviks in various ways offered compromise. They were willing to repay invested capital and loans, at least in part, but unwilling to continue the system or to guarantee future ownership and rate of profit. Thereupon the West from 1917 to 1922 spent a thousand billions in war to suppress the revolution. They financed armies, munitions, spies and brigands besides actually invading Russia with 25,000 of their own troops and 70,000 Japanese. They and their Russian allies killed 7 million Russian people and inflicted on them damage amounting to 60 billions of dollars. Whatever plans the Russian had to rebuild a new economic world were, were retarded for 10 years. The story does not make sense. Indeed, it is a gauge of our modern inability or unwillingness to reason. Consider what happened in those fatal years from 1917 to 1926. The Petrograd garrison revolted the Kornilov Putsch, backed by Britain, failed, and Kerensky fled. France and Britain made treaty to dismember Russia, and during the next two years, 14 nations invaded Russia. In 1918, rebellious Czech soldiers enlisted by the Allies against Russia and raided along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Kolchak proclaims himself supreme ruler of Russia, 
supported by the United States, France, and, Br and Britain. He rages with murder and cruelty, even as the armistice is signed, ending war in the West. But the Russian bear at bay, raped and bloody, turns and sinks in its claws. In a year, Kolchak, loaded with a billion rubles of loot, is in full flight. But Denikin and Wrangel attack from the east and rush to a point only a hundred miles of Moscow. The world sees the Bolsheviks wiped out, so Yudinich attacks Petrograd. Three months later, Denikin, driven back, deserts his army to flee on a French warship, protected by the shells of the British fleet. In the extreme north, 18,000 British troops, 5,000 Americans, 1,800 French, 1,200 Italians, 1,000 Serbs, and 20,000 white Russians, white Russians quarrel, parade, and mutiny. When the Americans hesitated, the British parodied. The Yanks are running, the Yanks are running everywhere. The Russians conquered Wrangel, shot Kilchak, and drove Yudinich to Paris. The, Bull, the Poles, with 50 million loaded by the United States and war supplies from the French and British, join the attack, but are, but are driven back to Warsaw. With new help from the Allies, they rallied and took, they rallied and took Western White Russia and their Ukraine from the Russians by the Peace of Riga. The Allies were encouraged and the Japanese come to the rescue with invasion in the Far East. A fantastic medieval despot leads there a war of rape, murder, and robbery. Nevertheless, by September, his army has fled to China and he has been shot. The Japanese withdraw. All this was made possible by the new Red Army, which the Fury Trotsky inspired and led although he was not the actual creator of the invincible force which saved Russia. Can I just say something? Can everybody get the picture? A revolution occurs in October 1917. Uh, the political system that was built in February 1917 collapses. Uh, already the czars have given up power. And this is very important because the state was identified with the czar. And the czar had the support of the church who said that the czar was God's representative on earth. When that collapses, uh, you know, there's a big identity problem to put it mildly. Uh, what is Russia? What is mother Russia? What is the Russian state? And at the same time, you have Russia still at war, but without a unified state. And so you go through this period from February 1917 to October 1917, where it's not clear who will govern Russia. And Lenin is constantly saying that we can take power based upon the Soviets, these local councils and so on. And so finally they make their move in October. And this is part of Lenin's brilliance and courage because didn't everybody, even the Bolsheviks, see his vision? They take power. They ask the Mensheviks and another party called the Social Socialist Revolutionaries to come along with them. They only come along temporarily. But you got all of these things going on, ambition, uh, different ideologies. But then you have this uh, preparation 
uh, for an invasion by 14 different nations, including Japan of Russia. And then uh, Du Bois says uh, a thousand billion, which is a trillion dollars, is devoted to financing a civil war against the Bolsheviks. And uh, what he's saying here, eventually uh, the counter-revolutionaries are defeated, but at a very high price. More Russians died in the civil war than in all of World War I. So it's, it's a bloody thing. At any rate. I was just gonna say also, you know that Russia has, you know, like left behind whiteness because they start to get treated like an African or like an Asian country. I mean, the invasions and the partitions and just, you have no right to any kind of history or sovereignty. Like you're just, you're just territory for the West. I mean. Oh yeah, and, and, and you know, if I could just say, that's why Lenin had to sue for this very humiliating peace with Germany, where they gave almost everything away. Uh, and um, because they had to get peace almost at any cost, if, they, if the Bolsheviks were to survive in power. And, uh, but at the end of World War I, a lot of what they lost in the treaty with uh, Germany, they got back. But, at, but then they had to continue this bloody civil war. And in the history of revolutionary struggles, civil wars are usually more brutal than uh, uh, foreign invasions. At any rate, by 1920, Russia was saved and her power consolidated. Within, she was federalized into a union of Soviet, Soviet socialist republics. Without the white armies were thoroughly beaten. The world revolution for which the communists hoped for, hoped did not materialize. Even Lenin had doubted if a single socialist agricultural state could stand alone in a capitalist industrial world. And Trotsky had insisted that the Russian revolution could only succeed if it was a prelude to a European uprising. Only Stalin, slowly but with ear to the ground, came to believe that Russia, was, Russia not only could, but must prepare to stand alone in the world as a socialist state. By 1920, there were settled in the West over 2 million persons, representing largely the former wealth and culture of Tsarist Russia with entree to the best and most powerful social, political, and financial circles of Poland. Poland, Germany, France, and England. They crystallized the worldwide opposition to the revolution, an opposition all the more powerful and persuasive because it was based on real suffering and sincere conviction that this blasphemous revolt against divine right was something so inherently hideous as to merit any kind of suppression. Now too came a new enemy, famine due to disorganization, droughts, and peasant revolt. In, 19, in 1891, the famine affected 17 million persons. In 1906, 21 millions. In 1911, 27 millions. But in 1921, no less than 43 millions. 
In the previous famines, the number of peasants who could not get enough grain for seed never was more than three millions. But in 1921, 13 millions were without seed. That is nearly half, that is nearly half Russia was destitute. Uprisings took place in many places and the garrison of at Kronstadt broke into open mutiny, which was suppressed in bloody retaliation. Lenin saw that socialism had gone too fast and with his far seeing and scientific adaptability to fact in the face of theory, he started the 10th Congress of the Communist Party in March, 1921 by proposing a new economic policy. This was a retreat from socialism far enough and long enough to secure necessary consumer goods by allowing small private business enterprises and by relaxing government controls, especially over the peasants. It was as Lenin explained, a step backward in order later to take two steps forward. But Trotsky called it surrender to capitalism while the world regarded it as the confessed failure of socialism. The new economic policy partly denationalized the conduct of industry, but not its control. The nationalization of industry had been, in fact, much less complete than, it's, than is generally assumed. Workers' control established November 14, 1917, was followed by confiscation of certain enterprises. It was not until June 1918 that the large industries were nationalized. Small industries were still only dealt with, specific, dealt with specifically and sporadically. What the new economic policy showed was that the time was not ripe for socializing agriculture. And without that step, no balanced economy could be built in the Soviets. The city industries must for a space depend on private business enterprise and forest foreign imports for necessary consumer goods. But the new policy meant temporary confusion. If in famine years, the brute instincts of the starving had been loosed, now gradually, the excesses of the new rich began to manifest. Persons who but yesterday had been penniless now enjoyed prosperity never before known in Soviet Russia. The demand for women increased, cafes and taverns spread and wine was again sold. There was little to bridle the instinct, instincts which had been repressed in the days of war by stern military regulation. Divorces increased and free love began to degenerate into excess. Retail and wholesale dealers who had been almost driven out by the revolution now quickly increased to half the previous number. But socialism and its aims were not surrendered as the West expected. The state still controlled most of the wholesale trade and gradually began to build trusts, syndicates, and banks analogous to similar enterprises in capitalist countries, but operated and controlled by the state as self-governing and self-supporting enterprises. The reversal of the new economic policy was a gradual process and was not completed until 1928 when the first five-year plan was launched. Meantime, Western Europe, convinced that the collapse of Russian communism was only a matter of time, sought to hasten its downfall from 1920 by a campaign of secret conspiracy with spying, bribery, and incitement to inner revolt which seethed for 20 years and was finally curbed. 
but even then not stopped by the Great Depression and the Second World War. The real and powerful anti-Russian opposition center was a Paris Torgprom, an organization of Russian nobles and European millionaires, including the founder of the Nobel Prizes and rich explorers from all the world, which met in 1920 to stem the tide and systematically finance and guide the reconquest of Russia. It commanded unlimited funds, military advice from the military chiefs, chiefs of staffs of Europe and cooperation of statesmen and conspirators of the first order. Centers for training Tsarist officers and soldiers were established in five or more European countries. An international anti-Soviet conference met in Bavaria in June, 1921, with delegates from all over Europe. By 1923, a plan for European military attack on Russia was matured and approved in principle by the General Staff of Europe. Meantime, carefully organized spying on the Russian conditions, convert encouragement and organizing of internal revolt had begun. A brilliant British subject of Russian birth, Sidney Riley began work in 1918 and continued until 1925. He had helped organize the Torg Prom and had not only become rich, but counted men like Winston Churchill amongst his friends. He hated the Russian Revolution with perfect, perfect hatred and worshiped the memory of Napoleon. He had tried unsuccessfully to organize internal revolt in Russia in 1918 and then returned to London and Paris. Within Russia from 1921, when London introduced a new economic policy, Trotsky, Bukharin, and Zinoviev led an opposition group designed to remove Lenin from leadership. The party in 1921 repudiated this movement and warned Trotsky. In 1922, Stalin was elected as general secretary. Immediately, the Trotsky group went underground and adopted a secret organizing method devised earlier by the British spy, Riley. It soon had codes and passwords and began to penetrate various governmental departments, including the army. A friend of Trotsky became Soviet ambassador to Germany and approached the then powerful Reichswehr for, for report. As a result, between 1923 and 1930, 250,000 gold marks annually were furnished by the Germans to replace Lenin by Trotsky as head of the Soviet state. The bribe amounted in the end to a half million dollars. Thus supported by funds, Trotsky at the death of Lenin in 1924 made his bid for power. At the party Congress in May, he forced the question to a vote and was unanimously defeated by the vote of the 748 delegates. Trotsky redoubled his efforts and after the freest and widest debate, on future leadership and policy in the Soviets, he was overwhelmed by party referendum by a vote of 740,000 to 4,000. He turned then to revolution. Through Winston Churchill and the spy Riley, he invited Savinkov, a professional assassin, to come to Russia and settled a close friend as ambassador to, Russia, to Great Britain. Riley, the British spy, encouraged by the death of Lenin, went again into action. He and Winston Churchill tried to induce Lloyd George, Prime Minister of England, to join them in forcing Savinkov 
a former Menshevik, on Russia as dictator. The Lloyd George thought Russia already on its last legs. Quote unquote, the worst is over, he said. But Riley was not so sure and enlisted the cooperation of Dettering, the oil king who had been buying up oil claims in Russia. Mussolini was introduced, is, was induced to invite Savinkov to Italy. The French government and British oil interests cooperated. Soon the new dictator entered the Soviet Union to head an uprising in the Caucasus. The revolt did not take place and Savinkov committed suicide in prison. Riley fled to the United States where he's widely welcomed. He lobbied successfully against a proposed government loan to Russia and met Henry Ford, whom a Russian reactionary had just furnished with the spurious protocols of the wise men of Zion. Then Riley was summoned to a meeting with Trotsky in Finland and left hurriedly. He crossed into Soviet territory and was shot dead. Trotsky set September 27, 1927, the 10th anniversary of the Russian Revolution for a revolt. It failed. Trotsky was exiled to Alma Alta, a city of 200,000 persons in southern Kazakh, in a climate not extreme and where he was furnished a house for his family and personal freedom for writing and correspondence. He himself said that in seven months of 1928, he received a thousand pieces of political mail and 700 telegrams and sent 800 letters and 500 telegrams. He was visited by a government official and warned he refused to heed in, in January 1929, was ordered out of the Soviet Union to the Turkish island of Prinkipo in the Sea of Marmara, where once Woodrow Wilson planned a peace congress. He arrived in Turkey in state with an armed bodyguard and was greeted by the press of the world. He immediately began in Turkey, France, Norway, and Mexico during the next 11 years a world war against the Soviets, which nearly deprived Russia of all liberal sympathy and convinced the reaction that communism was doomed. Meantime, the Torgprom in Paris prepared to stop Stalin's proposed five-year plan of Russian industrialization. Poincars and Briand were sympathetic and an attack on Russia was planned for 1929 or 1930. Could I just say something? Oh, this is a very important thing. This guy, Riley, um, he was this uh, uh, fabled uh, British spy and assassin. Uh, he has been memorialized in these films about Bond. What, what's his first name? James Bond. James Bond, James yeah. Bond. That's Riley. Uh, is built upon, uh, that character is built upon this guy. But, and here is, the story that Du Bois is telling, which is never told in the West, that always uh, memorializes Trotsky. That Trotsky once, he, well, two things. Uh, once he did not uh, get the leadership that is the general secretary of the party, he felt that he was so much smarter than Stalin and, and, and so did, you mentioned Bukharin and Zinoviev. Uh, Stalin would, was viewed as too dumb to follow Lenin. Um, and these, were, these guys considered themselves brilliant. But Trotsky felt that he was the best speaker, he was the most handsome, he was the best writer. Oh yeah, I think so. the guy was a player. Uh, 
from the Himalayas. <laughs> no, not from the Himalayas, he's a player. And um, it's not unusual, but he, um, he was very uh, self-centered. And so when he didn't win to become the, the uh, general secretary of the party, which is the top position in the uh, communist party, he then goes about forming a faction or many factions. It is against the law, the legal charter of the communist party to form factions, to go underground and form factions because the communist party is based upon this unity after decisions are made and so on. So then they put him out of the party and they give him a house in um, I think Kazakhstan to live but he continues from within the Soviet Union to carry out subversive activities against the revolution, including with the Germans. Now, in the 1920s, as Du Bois points out, the West is preparing by the end, by 1929, to make another attempt to overthrow the revolution. And that would include Germany, France, Britain, uh, and other countries. Trotsky and his representatives were going to, uh, did participate with this. And the West uh, had the idea of installing Trotsky in this next government, a government of occupation, literally. Uh, and uh, this is why in, in, uh, in the West, uh, Trotskyism has never been condemned, never been condemned. Trotsky is all, always seen as this romantic great revolutionary who saw the failures of Lenin and Stalin and the revolution. And they could always hold him up saying, hey, look, we told you that communism was a failure, was a fraud, was corrupt and, and, and repressive. And look, we have Trotsky, who founded the, the Red Army, who did all of these things, was close to Lenin, uh, here to tell you that everything the West is saying was true. And uh, up to this day, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the ideas of Trotsky are regularly discussed in, in, in university seminars, uh, there's always, uh, a welcoming uh, to the bourgeois media. Whenever they need Trotsky, they will pull him out and say, look, Trotsky said X, Y, and Z, Trotsky. And they will always have this thing that the, there were two leaders of the Russian revolution, Lenin and Trotsky. And that Stalin uh, and the rest of the communists were uh, betrayers of Lenin. And then they came with this uh, last idea that since you could not build socialism in one country, certainly not a backward country like Russia, what you had was a decadent and corrupt workers' state, which, uh, and, and sometimes they would, and this is why you get Hannah Arendt, uh, who will argue in her book, Totalitarianism, or um, uh, George Orwell, who will argue in the book, 1984, that Nazism and communism are equivalent, uh, et cetera. 
And this has been part of the narrative in the United States that the two uh, diversions from democracy are Nazism and communism. And since Nazism was defeated in World War II, that's why Francis Fukuyama will come up, come up at the end of the 20th century with this book, The End of History, which is a way of talking about a return to the dominance of Western civilization and bourgeois democracy. Uh, yeah, I don't so this is, this is high drama. The stakes are very, very high. Um, and as Du Bois was suggesting, you know, the future was carried on the shoulders of the Russian people, uh, not only with the Russian Revolution, but with the defeat of, of Nazism, of Hitler, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to bring the Soviet Union down was a way of reopening the doors to colonial domination of the world. Doc, I have a quick question about Trotsky. Yes. Um, was it just like a personal ambition thing that that was why, or what was his idea in terms of like the Soviet Union and like, why did he go so far left? Yeah. Like, why was he so crazy? <laughs> you know, that's kind of. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question to which I don't think I have the answer. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, and you, you guys have seen it in a, a small level in your own lives, you see it in all of our lives, people become over, overwhelmed by their own ambition, self-centeredness, uh, bourgeois culture, uh, which uh, privileges this individualism. And uh, the more Trotsky was told how smart he was, uh, uh, the more he believed it. And then he, he writes his own memoirs, his own biographies, and all he can talk about is himself and how great he is and how um, uh, he was the equivalent, the equal of Lenin. That was the big thing. And that, uh, that Lenin had wanted him to, to be the next leader, not Stalin. Um, Although, you know, Trotsky had spent most of his time in the capitals of Western Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, really, I mean, I have to say it, partying and living it up. Um, the, the, the guy was a player. He had that, they don't want to admit it. He was a player. And, um, and of course, he liked to be with, you know, the, literar the literati of, of Europe. Uh, in the and, and Du Bois points it out, for most of this time, he was siding with the opponents of Lenin, the Mensheviks. He was a Menshevik from 1905 to 1917. He was not with the Bolsheviks. Most Bolsheviks, you know, who had been in the country or even in exile, were highly suspicious of him. You know, even in this period, and you, you gotta see that period of, uh, of the formation of the Red Army, of the Soviets, and as a very uh, period of turmoil. Um, you know, just imagine uh, the state has collapsed uh, and you have all of these uh, revolutionaries running around, you know, like we see them out here today, 
you know, giving speeches and grandstanding and all of that. And here you had Lenin with an idea, with an ideology, with a strategy. And the question was, could the Bolsheviks, at least in St. Petersburg, win enough of the workers and then could they win uh, enough of the soldiers who were garrisoned around Petersburg to their side. And, you know, just like with Vietnam, when the war became intolerable, many soldiers, even when they were in Vietnam, became anti-war. You had the same thing in Russia. And so as they became anti-war and, and wanted food and the peasants wanted land, they would gravitate to one or another of the revolutionary parties. The Bolsheviks were strong in what they called the Soviets. The Soviets is just a word for a uh, Russian word for councils, you know? So you have councils in factories, workers' councils, councils in the military, councils among, and the councils were a form of self-government in a moment where the government collapses. But it is this very fluid thing, and, and believe me, the abdication of the czar and, and the end of the dynasty. I don't think we always understand what dynastic rule meant. It was, a risk, it was an aristocracy, but it was also uh, passed on through a family, you know? And for I think the Romanov, Romanovs, which was the last dynasty, had existed for maybe 300 years. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so the collapse was huge. But then, you know, you had these uh, bourgeois liberals who wanted to take power, but they didn't have what Lenin, see, Lenin was this brilliant leader. And he had influenced the Bolsheviks who were committed people who didn't always agree with him, by the way. Uh, because when Lenin said we can now we can now move to take power in October 1917, a lot of the Bolsheviks said, "No, man, we're not ready. We're not ready, and the people are not ready." But you know, things things sometimes happen in spite of what you plan, and things collapse to the extent where, in fact, the military was in revolt. Workers were on strike, hundreds of thousands of people marching through the streets. And the question for the people, for the military, is well, who will lead? Who will, who will you know, try to bring some government and order back to the country? And Lenin said, we will. It was a bold move. It was a bold move. And, um, and so then once you take power, then everybody's gonna say, hey, man, I, I helped you do that. I need some props. You know, I need position, that type of thing. Trotsky was that kind of guy, man. He was that kind of guy, you know, charismatic, articulate, very, very smart, but very bourgeois, very selfish. And his own BS, was ultimately his undoing. Because see, everybody assumed, and this is what Du Bois is saying, 
that uh, even though they, were, they, they won in the Civil War, they, they beat what they call the white forces, the white Russians, very interesting, they call themselves white. Uh, and I don't think they meant white as in white people, but the white Russians, I don't know why they used the word white, but they were the counter-revolutionaries. And, but see, they weren't, they weren't really committed to carrying the thing through to the end. And so when they began to experience defeats, they, they threw in the towel and ran. Um, but it, it's, uh, I don't know, and, and you know, be difficult unless you know, you know Russian and can study things uh, very close up. It's hard to know all of the details, but one can imagine uh, the complexity. And then like uh, Du Bois points out, famine. Now famine is not unusual in poor countries. But the famine after the revolution was the worst of all time. So you had to figure out how to get agricultural production up and running, not just the cities, because unless you got uh, uh, food production going, the cities would starve and industrial production uh, would fall apart. It was, it was, it was a it was difficult and sometimes you wonder and what Du Bois is assessing, he feels it was the leadership of Stalin. The guy that, every, that all of these intellectuals thought was just the dumbest person, uh, the worst person, but it was his, you know, history of, of, of working and organizing strikes with workers in Baku and the oil fields and and just, I, I think what Du Bois says is humility and steadfastness to the cause of Russia. Uh, the other thing is that he mentions the new economic policy, what Lenin called one step backward, uh, where they gave up on some state control. I think they even gave up on, on co uh, organizing all of the uh, peasants into collectives and cooperatives and allow for private ownership of uh, property and land. Uh, uh, but they had to feed the people, get over the famine, get production partially started again before they could go to what is really the socialist form of economics. Uh, and that is the five-year plan, which starts in 1928, 11 years after the revolution. I just wanted to add. I, don't know if I answered your question properly enough. But. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying with Trotsky. Yeah. I just wanted to add, uh, as far as Trotsky, uh, if you if you read some of his writings on, uh, particularly on Asia, you definitely get a sense that he had some chauvinistic, yeah. bordering on racist ideas about Asia and Asians. And actually, his uh, bio he himself wrote a biography of Stalin. That was like the last book he was working on. And uh, it begins with a very kind of race, racialist, at least you could say, uh, 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 racialist explanation of Stalin as an Asiatic and how he embodies like the, the, all the bad aspects of Asiatic people like Genghis Khan and stuff. So that was definitely influenced him because he was, you know, he was from Ukraine. 
he spent most of his life in these, uh, like Doc was saying, in these Western European capitals. He didn't really see himself very connected to Asia. And uh, in fact, he wrote a, a scree, a really horrible screed denouncing Gandhi also. And his analysis on India was pretty bad too. Really? So, so there's a lot of things like that, yeah. What did, what did he say about Gandhi? He wrote a thing talking about, he wrote like a let. he used to write these like open letters. He wrote like open letter to the workers of India. And he was like, I denounce Gandhi, the false prophet of the Indian bourgeoisie and uh, stuff like that. He would, he would write about, you know. Well, you, well, you know, this, um, I guess, you know, I don't want to get too far afield, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, gets you in the whole thing of CLR James um, because even if not Trotskyite organizations, but Trotsky's theories uh, were kind of strong in Detroit mm -hmm. from the 1950s onward. In fact, um, uh, going along with the whole Trotskyist thing that, well, you know, the war that Germany was waging against the Soviet Union, well, a lot of them said, I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, let them fight to the end, and uh, whoever wins, the wor the world working class can does not lose. If the Soviet Union were destroyed, they would see it favorably. And CLR James spent uh, those years of World War II not not building solidarity uh, with the Soviet Union or whatever, whatever. He spent his time reading of Hegel's Science of Logic. In fact, I got his book called Notes on the Science of Logic, uh, which is mimeograph. But, uh, and, and this, I, I've discussed this with Michelle and, um, and Emily I, I, uh, before, you know, that was the weakness of, um, of uh, um, uh, Grace. Grace Lee and Jimmy Boggs, the influence of Trotskyism. And infused in that, it's almost a part of the DNA of Trotskyism is anti-communism. They were hardcore enemies of the world communist movement. And of course, you know, as I presented, I think is accurate as the greatest peace movement of its time, it was at the core of all the fights for peace and national independence you're the enemy of that, then you're on the wrong side of history. And I think that's the, that's the verdict that uh, Du Bois arrives at, that Trotsky was on the wrong side of history. He betrayed the revolution. He betrayed his country. And as uh, 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 Du Bois will say, uh, he was not killed by an agent of Stalin. He was killed by uh, uh, the boyfriend of one of his lovers. That's, I mean, it's not such a heroic end, I guess. Yeah, I, I also just, I mean, reading this, it really is so civilizational, Stalin versus Trotsky. Uh, uh, so, I mean, Trotsky sounds so, like you can so much see his mark on the Western left, like, I know everything, there could be something going on in that part of the world, but whatever, I'm right, you know, screw you guys. Like I have the right answer. I've done the reading. Have you read this? And everything's about right. what you've right. read. Um, and just this, but this, this thing about just basic humility, 
like there's something happening. I want to learn from it. I want to be a part of it. I want to give myself to history. It's just a, a civilizational difference in the left. And I just remember going to India and, you know, whatever the university left, but then there everybody names their children Stalin uh, and Lenin. You know, and so it's just so childish to, you know, say, oh, I'm against the, the whole darker nations is, I mean, they're Stalinist, you know, it's, it is civilizational. I mean, he is Asiatic in that way. And he came from these, uh, these conditions of horrible uh, toil and oppression. He knew what that was. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's the civilizational thing is really important in understanding the split, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And the race question, of course, and, and Trotsky, you know, um, and Trotskyism uh, has never uh, come clean on the question of race in the United States, for example, or in South Africa. Uh, and uh, these days, you know, people who are neo-Trotskyists prefer not to talk about these matters. Uh, it's, it's sort of an embarrassment um, and it should be an embarrassment. I don't know how for all these years they ever held on to their, this position. Um, and, 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 you know, um, I don't, you know, I know I wrote this piece on Du Bois and Lenin and the very idea that Lenin was closer to Du Bois than to Trotsky will send a Trotskyite into a, oh damn near nervous breakdown if not something where he will threaten violence whether he can back it up or not <laughs> yeah can't threaten violence on me for you know even suggesting it although he's in portland oregon i mean All right, I'm going to continue. <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, a French staff was ready with soldiers from Poland, Romania, and fin Finland. Wrangel's white Russian army of 100,000 and Krasnov's Cossacks were to be prepared. British munitions makers were conferred with and money was raised to sabotage Russian industries. But before these plans came to fruition, the whole world of colonial imperialism reeled and threatened ruin. In October 1929 came the stock market crash in New York. In May 1931 came the collapse of the Austrian credit Anstalt in Vienna. And in September of that year, the Bank of England went off the gold standard. The Japanese army occupied Manchuria to save China from Bolshevism in 1931. And Montagu Norman, governor, governor of the Bank of England wrote to M. Mort, governor of the Bank of France, quote, unless drastic measures are taken to save it, the capitalist system through the civilized world will be wrecked within a year, end quote. I think that's the end. Well, that's the end of that chapter, yeah. <laughs> As you can see, it is a different historiography which um, uh, shows that, uh, that history is not just about the gathering of facts. Uh, the gathering of facts, the facts that you gather and how you interpret those facts 
are guided by your worldview, how you see history, how you see humanity. Uh, there is no objective stance when it comes to these matters. So, yeah. Yeah, Doc, I wanted to say that I just thought this chapter was so, um, I mean, so fascinating for that reason, because he's telling, he's telling like this epic of Russian history and how it changed the world through um, the intersection of these three very, very distinct characters, Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. And it's interesting that as people who um, are politically committed, you know, like we can see ourselves and then also different organizations in the tradition of kind of these three people. And I really agreed with what Magna you had said earlier about like this humility that was present in Stalin and Lenin. And um, I was so moved by the last paragraph on uh, page 65 when, um, when Du Bois is writing about how Stalin, you know, he with his slowly but with ear to the ground came to believe that Russia not only could, but must prepare long to stand alone in the world as a socialist state. Um, yeah, just that, like you had said, um, that steadiness and that loyalty which Stalin had with, was his strength. And then Lenin, um, Lenin was creative and rooted in ideas. And, and yeah, even though Lenin and Stalin weren't complete in themselves, it's like, they filled, they filled in something, you know, that could really move the country forward. Whereas Trotsky, him with his own brilliance, with his own strengths, because he made the choice to like ultimately act out of selfishness or without a deeper regard for what could uplift his people. Um, it just, it was all laid to waste. And I think Du Bois had said earlier in the chapter, like this idea of setting setting the revolution back or setting the world back years, if not centuries. Like you can really, in that context, you can see how much of a crime what Trotsky did was. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> definitely, uh, I think Du Bois' descriptions are very powerful of the three of them. How um, he describes, basically describes Lenin as uh, essentially a social scientist as much as a revolutionary that he believed in social theories and stuff but believe in testing them and that was brilliance that he was able to bring those things together in a way that others couldn't yeah. um, and then Stalin as somebody who wasn't so much a brilliant theorist as a very de devoted and hardworking and sacrificing um, organizer leader and basically was the 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 leader that was needed in that time um, for the challenges that the Soviet state and the Soviet people were facing. And I think it's, uh, again, it's very brave of Du Bois to talk about Stalin in this way, because, I mean, you can argue that even today, uh, Stalin is perhaps the most slandered individual of the 20th century, the kinds of lies uh, heaped on him by Western academia, they basically make want to paint him as as bad or often worse than Hitler and say like he was responsible for the deaths of so many millions of people more sometimes more than the total population of the Soviet Union. And you know, he was such a horrific, monstrous, he bloodthirsty human being. Um, and uh, like basically a you know, devil incarnate, 
But then Du Bois is saying at the height of the Cold War that no, like he was a great man. He was a great leader. He was a person who believed in peace. He was he was a person who was willing to make sacrifices that were necessary. So, uh, I mean, and that's that is what makes I mean, Du Bois can identify what makes Stalin great. And that's what makes Du Bois so great as a thinker for our era, as we've been saying, that he's able to make this connection in a very serious way that challenges the American uh, exceptionalist and imperialist narrative about Stalin and, uh, and Lenin. Yeah, I also wanted to say I really like on that point, I really, really I think this idea of historiography, which I had not been familiar with until I joined the free school, like the philosophy behind history is so essential because, yeah, I'm sure for most of us with the educations we've received, what we've heard is about, you know, the poverty, the bloodshed and the famine of the Russian Revolution. But, um, but yeah, it's it's like from what from what worldview or what ideology are those claims coming and it's so much more complex when you place it in the context of um yeah a country which is trying to rebuild itself in the face of um so much imperial force trying to lead counter-revolution within its borders and it's just i mean it's i i think this chapter also really gave me a sense of the scale of atrocity and um, the tremendous difficulty of, um, you know, building a revolution in a world that is dominated by Western imperialist forces. Yeah, and also how his study of reconstruction is just, it just, it clicks so much because he had um, excavated the truth from all the lies about it. So it really enabled him to see the truth of the Russian revolution. I mean, it's the way that they talked about uh, Reconstruction is the way that any ruling class will describe uh, the stirrings of working people and the creating a world on their terms. Um, and so he was able to recognize it and see it for what it was. And this is really unique, like uh, Michelle is saying, in American historiography. And it's something that comes uniquely out of the Black American experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really breathtaking, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, his last chapter, you mentioning the book Black Reconstruction, the propaganda of history. And he is acutely aware. And isn't it interesting that there's no other chapter in historical writing entitled The Propaganda of History or the ideology and whatever? Why, you know, just like Izzy was saying. Izzy, part of the Lotus Collective, she was saying, you know, why did we need um, Foner's reconstruction once we had Du Bois's Black reconstruction? What did Foner add? And only mentions Du Bois one time in the preface, in the whole thing. But uh, the propaganda of history and, and to do science, social science, you must fight through all of these veils, all of this uh, propaganda, all of this lying and stuff. And still the lies persist because like you say, Joe, um, Stalin has not been reclaimed in the Soviet Union. In fact, Lenin was even buried with Gorbachev and Yeltsin. 
even the tradition. I mean, what they call St. Petersburg today was named Leningrad. I mean, is that an honorable thing to name the city after the czars? When it was named after its liberator previously? I mean, you know, uh, Russia was brought to its knees. And by the way, they did not even uh, celebrate the 150th anniversary of the birth of Lenin, nor the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Was no official state celebration. I mean, that's a signature of a humiliated people, even, you know, though we talk about Putin and so on, it's still a, a humiliated nation. Yeah, interesting. Uh, a lot of uh, well, one of this one of the things that's used in the West still to demonize uh, Russians is that they always say that opinion polls in Russia usually show that the most admired Russian uh, uh, in history is uh, Stalin, in, even today, because of his primarily, I think, because of his role during World War Two and saving. So even people who are not communists see him as a, yeah. you know, like a, a figure who saved the nation and led the nation in his darkest hours. Interestingly, a person who wasn't a Russian, also ethnically a Russian, is the greatest Russian. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, because Georgia now is a separate country as well after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, interesting comment from Andrew Stewart. Uh, he writes, even Trotsky's major biographer, Isaac Deutscher, was forced to admit that Trotsky's downfall was ultimately because of Trotsky's uh, Eurocentrism. Okay. Isaac Deutscher actually put it that way. I don't remember him formulating it that way. Eurocentrism, using the word Eurocentrism. I know uh, that, you know, many, many his historians, they don't make a big deal of it, but they will admit that looking West was a dead end. And that's where Trotsky said the revolution had to look to the West. And ultimately uh, Lenin had to say, that or, or, or conclude, and, and of course, this, you know, that, that a Asian, a man from part of the Central Asian part of the world becomes the leader of the country uh, and not a really a white Russian, a European Russian. Yeah. Uh, uh... I know that that book, uh, this Isaac Dorcher, I think it's three books he wrote, biographies of Trotsky, and it was, it's still kind of considered really important in the academic left and the, obviously the Trotskyist left. Um, but uh, one point I remember from that uh, is that he kind of also admits that um, Trotsky's critique, well, he says, that, you know, he talks about how Trotsky critiques Stalin for building socialism in one country and supposedly Trotsky wanted international socialism. But then Deutscher is forced to admit that he tries to kind of in a contradictory way say that Stalin kind of fulfilled what Trotsky was saying because he went and then after World War II, there were socialist states outside the Soviet Union because of the policy of Stalin, you know, all, of, all throughout Eastern Europe. So it's kind of a contradictory uh, book, but yeah, one of those people don't read Russian America, but they read Isaac Deutscher's mm -hmm. trilogy on Trotsky. That's part of the problem. I think even 
the treatment of Trotsky by Stalin says a lot too, because despite how much people try to paint Stalin as evil, and I remember even growing up, the thing I knew about Stalin was from George Orwell's Animal Farm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which now that I think, and it's funny because I was taught in school how it's a great piece of literature, like look at the way they're using animals as allegory or symbols for real life events. That's like, I mean, if we're talking about the propaganda of history, I can't believe you're making us learn history through animal caricatures of <laughs> <laughs> real people with consciousness. But I mean, which, I mean, it's a huge insult to Stalin and I can't believe they painted Trotsky as such a saint um, in that book. But also, I mean, even in this chapter, Du Bois talks about despite Trotsky, the largest, the biggest counter-revolutionary and traitor to the Russian people, they, instead of executing him, they gave him that really nice house. They were like, okay, we're putting you in exile in Russia in this house, you can receive mail, you can send mail, you can be with your family and whatnot. But their one thing was like, but you need to stop trying to overthrow this experiment, this great experiment that we're attempting here. And yet Trotsky just would not stop. And despite the fact that he was outvoted by the Soviet, like by the, I forget the governance term for it, by, by all those delegates. Um, Stalin won, Trotsky lost, despite twice attempting to win the majority of votes, democracy at its finest. He refused to, you know, he refused to just say like, okay, I'll let the experiment go on. Um, and I just think the fact that all these facts are hidden, um, and that Stalin is portrayed as such an evil person, it's just, I mean, just shows how intense the propaganda is. Yeah, Stalin's, um, like his, his, like his upbringing, you know, it really reminds me of like people that live in like North Philly or people that live in like Butler Yates, you know what I'm saying? Like intense, intense, uh, like poverty, intense, intense, like submergence, you know? Um, but out of that, there's this type of like, a you know, I mean, it creates this real uh, humility, you know, he really could, I mean, carry and, 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 you know, be kind of steadfast as you know, he was talking about because he knew toil and he knew like, uh, and he was just, uh, you know, having lived in such a submerged um, sort of uh, or submerged conditions for lack of a better term, um, you know, he could, he could, you know, empathize with the people and, you know, uh, you know, carry this revolution. And I, I just thought that was, you know, so interesting because it reminded me of, of of where we are, you know. Um. Um, some comments earlier. Uh, Jerome Muhammad had a comment uh, saying that he was saying you didn't mention uh, Du Bois's book Black Folk Then and Now. And that book was very helpful for him when he traveled to Sudan and other parts of Africa. Um, he also commented, uh, I'm not, I don't remember what this was in reference to, but he wrote this earlier. He said, in reference to the Quran, some verses are allegorical and some are decisive, but the decisive explains all of it. I think maybe it had to do with we were talking about different kinds of logics. And he also wrote, uh, Two weeks ago, Minister Farrakhan said as a child, his Caribbean mom gave him the crisis magazine to read. I think when we were talking about Du Bois and editing the crisis. Uh, Jai Tang, 
Nisial writes interesting point on social laws when we were talking when you were talking about Du Bois's laws social laws. Laura Lomax says thank you for the unpacking. Uh, Dr. M. Uh, Don DeBar says we must pay close attention to the part about the 1905 revolution. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, oh, if I could just, um, you know, I, I agree with you, Joe, to, in 1950, 1950, for Du Bois at the height of the Cold War, to say truth, is more important than anything else. You know, a year or in this year, he would be indicted mm -hmm. by the uh, government of the United States for being an agent of a foreign government. Uh, 1950 is the year that begins the war in Korea against Korea by the United States. And it almost came to a nuclear confrontation. Um, these were dangerous times to put it mildly. In a few years, uh, Khrushchev and the then leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union would denounce Stalin. And he's never been restored since then, unfortunately. We, we haven't gotten a, a accurate historical presentation of Stalin, which plays to the propaganda of Western Europe and Western civilization. Um, but um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the truth, I think what, what Jerome Mohammed was saying, the truth resonates uh, among all people who want the truth, whether you are Muslim, a Christian, a communist, a atheist, whatever you are, the truth resonates. And, um, you know, Du Bois is never, as I was saying once before, it's not anti-religious, he's anti-dogma. And and obstacles that put, put in your way the discovery of the truth. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that's also where the beauty of his writing comes in. It's not this like stilted, just like, oh, this happened, that happened, I have this fact to back it up, but it's just like, I'm animated by the truth and the truth will yeah. Yeah. The truth will set you free, it's, it will liberate you. Um, yeah, I mean, he really brings so much beauty to communism. I mean, I had never, I mean, I had never, I mean, I've, I've read stuff here and there, but you know, it's, it's kind of dry and, but this, this work is just like, it's, it's almost like a spiritual experience reading it, just how lovely it is. Um, yeah, and I don't know, I think I was, I think I was telling this to Nanta a while ago, but I, I used to read a lot of, uh, when I, especially when I was younger, um, you know, just getting into college. I used to read a lot of science fiction because I was like, oh, what is the better world? What does it look like? But I think if you had put this book into my hand, I don't think I would have been as much of an enthusiast because he's actually describing something that concretely happened. Um, and he would have turned my eyes in a completely different direction um, and given my imagination a different kind of outlet. Um, yeah, he's... Yeah, actually, um, especially I'm thinking about how he he went into a discussion about um, the different places he visited, uh, like ancient Greece and Italy and Turkey. And he went into a discussion about ancient Rome and Greece and uh, the kinds of ideas that emerged from there and then transitioned to the Russian Revolution. And that took me back to uh, 
made me think back to when we were doing our philosophy lectures uh, last year, last April, in tribute to Lenin's 150th birthday anniversary. And uh, we had gone through and talked about Western philosophy and we tried to connect, we tried to look at how did the Russian Revolution emerge or what, you know, what's antecedents and so on and how much was it connected to that and how much was it connected to other things. So it seems Du Bois is trying to do a similar thing. He's like we were saying, you were saying in the introduction, he's connecting it to humanity. He's talking about what, you know, the, in the Russian Revolution, not as a spontaneous isolated event, but its emergence and its role in human history. Yeah, and see, this is, I, you know, I'm still, I, I can't get it right. I don't have the words to put it in, but there is this very unique and singular uh, framing of this historic movement by Du Bois, and the frame is humanity. I mean, which means that, oh, it's just, he, um, you know, he leaves no space for white supremacy. In fact, his framing of humanity is an attack upon the idea of white supremacy. So he frames world history in an anti-white supremacy manner. The framing of it, the epistemology of it, the historiography is inherently anti-white supremacy. It predisposes one towards humanity. You read Du Bois, that, that's what uh, Magnus said, the spiritual dimension. I mean, it, when, when I say it lifts you, I mean, you being in a society like this, you're always beat down. Even the anti-white supremacists are white supremacists. You know, you can't trust them, you know? Oh, well, I'm anti-white supremacy for two months, you know, <laughs> then I'm back to white. <laughs> but I mean, it's just that uh, banal. But with Du Bois, you're always being pushed towards humanity. You're always being pushed to appreciate humanity. And just like when he was describing I think he was going through the Black Sea and then the Eastern Mediterranean through Constantinople. And this is, you know, like Catherine said, he is a protagonist. Isn't it interesting? The social scientist as protagonist, as um, an active observer of world history. And he, He's going back to Greece and Rome that was so great. And where are they today? And then, you know, he's, he's telling this story and I have to look up some of those places uh, as he travels through these ancient sites that are foundational to Western civilization. And he's going and he makes it clear from Asia to Europe. But I, I find this very, very, this, this method, you know, which is very ancient, I think. It's, it's almost 
the way the ancient form of narration of telling a story of telling history you know what i'm saying um it's not this act as you said you know like you said Megan, the stilted academic elitist uh, empty uh uh, and even made up, you know, stuff. Here you have the difference, and you can you can know the world in its multiple contrasts. I can know Europe by no coming from Asia. So he's not. So he's, he he goes through Europe to get to the Soviet Union and Asia, but then after visiting, he comes back to the West through Asia, isn't that interesting? That I can know the West by knowing Asia. And that's what he says, that quote that I've read, do you mind if I just read it? Because it's so fascinating where he says that um, um, Russia is a world, behind is Russia, uh, Europe is before, is, is in front of me, Russia and China. Here meet the past, the present, and what will be. The past, the present, he doesn't say the future, what will be. Which, which that formulation suggests the human working through this whole thing, freedom and necessity. Uh, Russia couldn't go from poverty and uh, backwardness to advance communism because I wanted it to. It had to go through certain stages. The laws of human development would not allow the people of Russia to just do anything. And that's why I think when he, when he uh, focuses upon Stalin, a man who was practical, a man who knew the people, the people were not going to give up their religion. They're not going to give up everything that they have been practicing for thousands of years, but they did want something better. So you had to, you know, great political figure, I would say, Stalin, to know the people as well as to know the potential of the people. More comments, a comment from uh, Nuri, she writes, uh, like Meghna was saying, you can really see how the American left today aligns with Trotsky and its factionalism and total inability to distinguish between ambition and the sacrifice demanded by principle. Yeah. Trotskyists are those vague leftists who refuse to identify as communists or with any actual historical movement. Rather, it's a purely hypothetical progressivism, like the idea that communism is good in theory, but bad in practice. <laughs> there are flashy ideas, but no ideological struggle or practice. Mm -hmm. Stalin, on the other hand, was willing to make those sacrifices based on principle and to put in the hard work because he knew the laboring masses. I really like Du Bois's description that Stalin was neither quick nor brilliant. He was more than that, slow and tireless and loyal. Trotsky was erratic and fickle while Stalin was steady. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that he says 
Stalin was neither quick nor brilliant. He was more than that, slow and tireless and loyal. That in certain circumstances, it's better to be slow and tireless and loyal than be quick and brilliant. Yeah, or to have character. Right, right. To have character and not just to be about, you know, I mean, we see it all around us. I mean, it just, and, and social media has given a platform. I mean, if Trotsky were alive today with social media, <laughs> he would be, I mean, he would be off the chain, man. <laughs> Yeah, after this, I started looking, I was just looking like, okay, Moscow trials, I want to know more. And it's just impossible. It's all videos of Trotsky speaking about it. And it's just, it's so, you can't find the truth about it. You know, I mean, buried under something somewhere, some Grover Fir book. And I mean, also, that's why also, this is so important to actually know the truth about what happened, because yeah. it's virtually stamped out everywhere, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, Well, yeah, I think if he was alive today, uh, uh, probably the national endowment of, for democracy would be <laughs> giving him a platform and yeah. Twitter they, and they Facebook. They do give him a platform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he might have his own live on Facebook on Saturday morning, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, another comment uh, from Kathy. Uh, the part where Du Bois talks about civilization struck me because as Doc was saying, growing up in the West, we're taught to sing praises of Greece and Rome as the glorious roots of Western civilization. But instead, Du Bois paints the remains of those classical civilizations like an old weary man whose time has come and gone. This compared to the enthusiastic budding energy of Russia, striving for a civilization that will not die of its contradictions and her new conception of culture, a foundation of mass participation in civilization in 1926. It's a beautiful way for Du Bois to tell America in the midst of McCarthyism and rampant Trotskyism, that it has much to learn and must learn from the Soviet Union and the rise of Asia, instead of trying to find commonalities with and trying to save European civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. <laughs> But I think it's it's an important point also that um, uh, I think Du Bois did write here and elsewhere, and it continues to be true that uh, America has a lot to learn from Russia. Uh, I remember, I think in his obituary of Stalin, he also talked about how, um, you know, Roosevelt was kind of forced to take some lessons, at least from the Soviet experiment about uh, control of industry and things like that. And the whole West was forced to, to learn certain things about whenever we talk about socialized medicine or, or other ideas like that. A lot of that was the impact of the Soviet Union. But the problem is the arrogance uh, of the Western intellectuals and intelligentsia that uh, is trying to dismiss out of hand uh, everything that existed in the Soviet experiment. Whereas in the third world, you had a lot of people... Um, from a wide spectrum ideologically, even many people who are not communists who would study the Soviet experiment in terms of development theory and um, other things and try to see like, well, what are the things that allowed them to succeed so rapidly? Um, and again, that, that it remains true today for uh, US attitudes towards the people, People's Republic of China as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
Uh, I was gonna say how like previously I've heard about the Russian Revolution, but I don't think I could fully appreciate it until Du Bois, um, because I think through Russia and America, the lens that Du Bois always gives is how do I understand the world through the masses of people? And for him, it was always the black worker in America. And then I think it was through the black worker that he could also understand the masses of the world. And I know even in black reconstruction, he had compared um, the moment after the civil war um, and the events that unfolded uh, as comparable to the Russian revolution and the revolutions throughout the world. Um, and I think it's also how I've come to understand the significance of the Russian revolution, because as we've kind of sort of talked about, it's that it's not easy and it doesn't, it isn't just kind of a magic moment when things finally go the way they are, but rather it's a long struggle and it required leadership such as individuals um, as Stalin. Um, and I think it's also interesting because as we're trying to understand our current moment, this particular kind of piece of Du Bois helps, to, helps us to identify kind of what are the forces that can bring about revolutionary change in the world. Um, and this point that we've mentioned in terms of potential where it's that not um, like where is the potential for change and like true, like whether it's freedom or democracy. Um, and he was able to identify that in Russia, um, despite kind of the intense propaganda that had happened at the time. Um, and to see that, like it was expected that it would be difficult, but the leaders and the people um, had a goal that they wanted to work towards. Um, and yeah, I think that's not, not a lens that we've been taught, which is to have hope and see potential and to strive for that. Rather, it's kind of, we've been taught um, to see kind of these events in history as kind of bygones and not um, informing kind of what's needed to be done in order to move towards um, change. Yeah, it reminds me, what you just said, Alice reminds me of something you've been saying a lot recently, Doc, which is that Du Bois could always find a way out. Um, and it's related to, I mean, I, even there's this one phrase he says in this chapter that I found so beautiful, where he talks about like him moving east, going to Russia, and then also going to the border of Russia, China, and eventually to Asia as well, mm -hmm. is he says, I want, I'm traveling because I want to come back and be able to reinterpret my native land um, where modern freedom was born. And just this, I mean, it's related to what Kathy was saying too about Europe, but also in some ways America. Um, I mean, in such a decadent society can feel that this is the wary old man that's soon gonna lay, inevitably going to lay down and rest forever. Um, and for Du Bois, he was always looking for a way out. That's why he traveled this, him being a social scientist, him saying, I wanna come back and reinterpret my native land, um, understand where, where the way out is, um, like where the world is moving as well and whether the people of America can go with it or if they're just gonna choose to die with this dying civilization. And yeah, and even just this thing about Russia and what you were saying earlier, Doc, about how the Soviet, the fall of the Soviet Union was a disruption of this natural, what I would call kind of like a pendulum. Mm -hmm. I don't know, kind of this pendulum coming back that's, that's moving towards the East, like the rise of Asia, the rise of the East, what that means for 
freedom and global democracy and just this. And I think it's so beautiful the way Du Bois at the beginning of the chapter is framing Greece and Rome, these fallen civilizations that could produce so much beauty and advance certain ideas, but then fall because they were based on slavery. Right, right. Um, and that Russia is attempting something else. The people want something else. It's a like this really bold experiment um, of a civilization that's not based on slavery. And like Kathy was referring in her comment, where culture, where the undercurrent of culture is the mass, partici mass participation of the people. And I feel like just putting it, I think it just helps so much to understand today too, like what we should be looking out for, how we should be interpreting Asia. Um, and I just love the way Du Bois can see, I don't know, just be so prophetic, but see these broad strokes of history, like where this pendulum is moving. Well, you know, it's so interesting. If I, I agree with you. By the way, I just want to, you know, I remember last week, uh, Catherine Blunt talking about the peasant question and how, because uh, that's where, you know, up until recently, all pov most poverty was concentrated. And, you know, China just, uh, said a couple of months ago that they had wiped out extreme poverty from China, which meant that they had finally resolved not just the question of poverty, but rural poverty. And the peasantry are now liberated from that social uh, scourge. I thought that was very important uh, in China's move forward. But, um, you know, I, I, I would be so interested in how Chinese scholars, not of America, but of China, would interpret Du Bois. You know, because don't forget that Du Bois went to China in the late 50s, when it was illegal to go to China, it was illegal, you know? And he goes to China. And he meets with Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, and I guess a number of Chute and other people. But so there is that relationship, but how historians, Chinese historians of China would understand Du Bois or Chinese historians of Asian or world history would understand Du Bois. I think Du Bois would resonate deep in China maybe more deeply in China right now than in the United States, uh, where I guess only second to Stalin, he is distorted and put down. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I often say to myself, and I talk to myself a lot these days, you know, um, that a nation like the United States and black people will never be free as long as they reject Du Bois. What nation can be free and you reject one of your great liberators? Can't do it. Um, and all this debate about whether Du Bois recognized homosexuality or transgendered people and all that. <laughs> Come on, money. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> Here we're talking about humanity. And, and you emphasize, it's like going from the sublime 
down as deep into absurdity as you can go. And, I, and I'm not against trans people or homosexual people. But what is homosexual liberation in a world that oppresses billions of people? So I, I think Du Bois might have more resonance, sadly, in today's Asia than he does in today's America, because it takes liberated people to fully appreciate Du Bois. Um, and uh, Asia, including India, by the way, I think would be, um, and maybe Nandatha and Raju are going to take that up and uh, begin that discussion of Du Bois and probably reading The Dark Princess. <laughs> I would be so interested in how Du Bois would be read by Chinese in Mandarin. I just wanted to say, um, following up with what Emily was saying about seeing a way, Mark was saying about Chinese, uh, getting people out of extreme poverty and just how like optimism is the background of all of this. Like if you have faith in the people and what they can do, if you unleash them from poverty, then civilization can flourish. It's really missing here, but it needn't be because I mean, we have people who are, who are, who are brilliant, but who are languishing in poverty. I mean, it doesn't have to end like This civilization can end, but a new one can, can lack of belief in people. There's no way out. It's just pessimism. Right. Um, but this right. just helps you see how, yeah. I mean, it's also in the situation of Russia, this dying, decaying empire. It's losing, you know, ground to Japan. It's just on its way out. And mm -hmm. the Soviets just came and they said, no, this is not all our country is. The yeah. people country and the they people make, make up the world. You keep freezing um, up, man. Yeah. You keep freezing up, Megna. Sorry, Doc. The internet connection here is bad. Oh, okay. Oh, I was. <laughs> ain't no thing. <laughs> you just froze up again. <laughs> also, with this, with, regarding China's alleviation of rural poverty, the speech I was mentioning to you, Doc, before the live stream started, where Xi Jinping gave this speech at in 2019 at a conference in Beijing called. I think it's the Conference of a Dialogue of Asian Civilizations. And it was attended by Russians and like many different Asian countries. The reason why I found it so significant was because he, one, he lays out civilizational history and talks that talks about Asian civilizations needing to have greater confidence in the fact that they're ancient civilizations. But then he lays out this three-point program where he says, the reason why Asian civilizations need to unite today is one for peace which he says is better, is more important, which is more precious than gold. Two is the eradicate, eradication of poverty across Asia. He says, like, especially the, its impact on women and children across the continent. And then third is, I think about economic interconnection, economic and cultural interconnection inspired by the Silk Road, Tea Road, um, Spice Road. But I think just, I, th I think I wouldn't have been able to see the possibility, just the potential, I think, in the rise of Asia, just being able to understand oh, yeah. 
the, I don't know, this pendulum that's happening, I think without Du Bois. Oh yeah, yeah. This, this rise of Asia is, is not, in, is, I mean, it's just world historic. Um, and I was, um, I was talking to a friend of mine, a sociologist in London yesterday I hope she'll be able to come on these live streams at some point. Very brilliant woman uh, of Jamaican background. And I was reading to her, I think I, I read, it, read it today, maybe last week, that part where Du Bois talks about China. Y'all remember that? May, may I read it again? Would you mind if I, would it, it um, because it, Hold it one second. Um, this is, uh, I'm so I, I really this. Um, oh, this is actually on page one thirty four. I guess we'll get it get to it next week. Listen to this. I mean, it's just this is not. I mean, his. I mean, you know, everybody hates history as a, as a course, as a discipline. They hate it. I mean, only second to mathematics, you know, because the worst teachers are history teachers and mathematics teachers. But, but then, just like you were saying, Alice, you know, with Du Bois, you can feel, oh, this is what it's about. Listen to what he says about China. China is inconceivable. Here first a man out of the empty West realizes where the population of the world really centers. Never before has a land so affected me. For Africa, I had more emotion, a greater wave of understanding and recognition. But China to the wayfarer, to the traveler, of a little week, of a short week, and I suspect of a short year, is incomprehensible. I have, of course, a theory, an explanation, which brings some vague meaning to the mass of things. I've seen and heard, but I understand now as never before how I have mistrusted human history and miss the whole meaning of a people. And this I know, and this I know, any attempt to explain the world without giving China a place of extraordinary prominence is futile. Perhaps the riddle of the universe will be settled in China, by which he means the human universe. And if not, if not in no, in, in no part of the world which ignores China. This is huge because that, because you know, Du Bois is a great signifier, you know, you know, signifying about something. And he's signifying about the West. How could you claim to know humanity and not know China? Isn't the riddle of the human universe if it is to be answered, must in big measure be answered in China. This is on, by the way, page 134 of the man, uh, manuscript. And that's 1950. 
Doesn't it sound like he was talking right today? This great prophetic voice. He didn't know everything, but knowing enough and being broadly enough educated, he could say this. He hadn't been to China except in the trip that he made in 1936, I think. Maybe he did, he did go to Manchuria on that trip. But this is before the revolution in 1936. This, I mean, you know, I just think uh, this is something we have to face up to. It may be an inconvenient truth for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people who are dogmatically Afrocentrist, a lot of people who are dogmatically Eurocentrist. You know, uh, those who want to see China as a threat uh, to Africa and to Europe, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I won't forget Zakia, you know, Zakia Ali. That day in free school, we were still meeting in person. She talked about her trip to the women's conference in Beijing in the 90s, I think. And she said, if there's any place you would want to return to, it would be to China. And that kind of, you know, Yeah, it's also funny because Du Bois is also mentioning in this chapter, it's briefly, but he says, and to this day, the US keeps insisting that it can save the world. It can save itself, save capitalism, capitalism the way it did in the 19th century. Um, through enslavement of the rest of the world. But then now today you see, like beginning with Russia, like you said, the beginning, I don't know, I guess the dusk of dawn, um, a beginning of human history with the Russian revolution and now with Asia rising, the possibility of unity between Asia, Africa, working people across the world under the banner of peace. Um, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, I think you're the one who said this, but it's just, almost this feeling of inevitability of people who've been oppressed for so long, enslaved and poor, impoverished, who are no longer willing to just take slavery, they're ready to free themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's just, I don't know, it's just this feeling you get from the way Du Bois is talking about the movement of people, um, starting with the Russians. Um, and almost, I feel like it goes with this, what he said earlier, I think we, we might have talked about it earlier about this logic of just this logic of oppressed peoples, like the logic of the black worker that connects you to the darker peoples of the world. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. See, and this is interesting the way you put that, Emily. There must be something that connects you to the rest of the world. You know, it's not, it must be a, a, a social uh, formation. For example, the, the, specific, uh, the, the specific positioning of Black people and Black workers in the West, in the West, you know, as he says, I was born and I, you know, have suffered and I have been excited, exhilarated by the West. I'm a Western person. Baldwin makes this point perfectly clear. And as such, the question is not to deny that. 
But the question is, what does that then connect us to? And how are we connected with? How are we connected with in this great dusk of dawn, this new beginning, this new light, this new opening, this renaissance of humanity? And that's where we are. And like you said, I agree with you, Emily, this idea that Du Bois, there's not an ounce of pessimism in his writing. This is 19, the man is about to be arrested for being agent of a foreign government. And he's, I mean, he's, and he's 82. He's an old man, but still filled with life and optimism. This is, it's, you know, I think that from Black Reconstruction to this unpublished manuscript, we have a body of work out of which, and this is the last 30 years of Du Bois's life, but a body of work that might be the foundation of the next stage of revolutionary ideology. And because um, it's bigger, it's bigger than all of the existing revolutionary theories. It is much bigger. And like Henry Winston said in a very, I never forgot once I've read this in Strategy for a Black Agenda that Lenin understood Du Bois, not Du Bois understood Lenin. And yeah. Doc, do you mind expanding on the revolutionary or how it, uh, you know, this is the next step in revolutionary ideology is, is it sort of the, or yeah, it's just a really striking uh, formulation. I just kind of, yeah. Take, for example, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is like a Stalin or Lincoln. Xi Jinping is imagining a new China. You know, it's not the China of Mao by long shot. I mean, for him to go back to Sun Yat-sen, which Alice and I talk about a lot, <laughs> And to reclaim Confucianism and Buddhism as a part of the civilizational inheritance of China, of socialist China, of China led by a communist party is huge. I think Du Bois, more than any thinker I know of, has imagined the world, the future world. And as we read this, 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 and I think when we get to the next chapter, it's even going to be more. When he talks about Japan, but I want to read this that he says about Japan. Uh, God. Uh, oh yeah, this is what he says about Japan. You know, he talked about you know going through the Black Sea and the Dardanelles and all of that from Asia to Europe. And he, you know, he sees oh God, possibilities in Asia, 
and failure in Europe. But then he says of Japan, to me, this is on page 151 of the manuscript, to me, the tragedy of this epoch was that Japan learned Western ways too soon and too well and turned from Asia to Europe. The failure of Japan. And where does Japan go today? I mean, well, hopefully to force the United States to get all them weapons out of their country, nuclear weapons and military bases and seek friendship with Korea, the whole, both Koreas and with China and with Vietnam and so on. To become Asian again, to learn to be Asian. Now, uh, to the credit of the Japanese, they love jazz, uh, which might be the link, you know, might be the link uh, that connects them back to Asia and to the Afro-Asiatic world. But I, see, I think, see, the word ideology also is used to mean worldview. Um, a worldview of history and historical movement. Du Bois comes forward with the idea of the unity of Pan-Asia and Pan-Africa. It's, it's like he's saying, well, this is what we must do. That the West is in decline. The West is exhausted. The West cannot be the center of a world revolution. And, 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 you know, Du Bois had his own concept of what a world revolution was. Um, and he felt that, uh, that it would be Asia and Africa. But China, even in 1950, a year after the Chinese revolution, the country is decimated from war and poverty and civil war. I mean, how could he have seen that? But he did. Um, yeah, I, that's what I mean. Such a visionary, such a prophetic thinker. And that's what is so needed. You know, you could look at our country, you could look at the young people in particular. No vision no way of understanding the world, you know? And uh, everything is in the moment. Black Lives Matter is in the moment. Social, well, what is, well, we don't really know what socialism is. I mean, Bernie Sanders says that the socialism that he believes in is white socialism of Nordic countries in Europe. <laughs> Here you got the biggest socialist country in human history in China, but he can't identify with that. Hey, I mean, that guy, is, that guy is a piece of garbage, man. I don't give a fuck what he says. I mean, you know, the large, I mean, this is where socialism for one and a half billion people is being built. And you're gonna tell me about Sweden and Norway? Come on, Playboy, give me a break. You see, you see what I'm saying? And Du Bois, humanity.
Bernie Sanders, white folk. And he acts like a white man. He acts like one. There's no humility. I even question his human decency. I don't care what his proposals are. Du Bois the world. Japan learned the West too soon and too well, and then became European. Ooh, hell of a judgment. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think, yeah, with the, you know, the revolutionary ideology, it can have, or the, you know, sort of, uh, it, it, it has the effect of like, it can have the effect of waking Americans up. You know what I'm saying? I think part of what I was thinking about um, is okay, well, why aren't, you know, um, uh, like why aren't Americans, like why isn't there like a sense of struggle? Um, and, and there is like, I do think about the, like, the media a lot. I do think, you know, we're constantly consuming like, uh, you know, it's, it's constantly distracting, distracting or distracting us from, well, what is, you know what I'm saying? Um, if we weren't so distracted from, uh, you know, poverty or from racism or from war, um, then I, I, I don't doubt the, uh, the uh, it would be very easy out of a North Philly, out of Butler, Pennsylvania, or Butler, yeah, Pennsylvania, um, you know, a, a rising a, a Huey, a new, a, a rising a, a, a person like Stalin, you know what I'm saying? Uh, because the, I mean, it, you know, poverty hasn't changed, like, um, you know, drugs and all this, all this, um, all this terrible, uh, all the destruction of like humanity here in America hasn't changed. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it's like, we're not, uh, there's no sort of reaction there's, or not even reaction, but there's no sort of like thinking about, okay, well, this is going to happen to my children. You know what I'm saying? Um, and to me that, I mean, to me that has to, or like, it do, there does need to be a waking up um, for our, in, in America. There does need to be a sort of, okay, there can be a future. Um, uh, because without it, we just, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it is, a, it is collapse. I mean, it is a decadency and decay. You know what I'm saying? And then people have to pay for it and continue to have to pay for it with their lives. You know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Du Bois is, I mean, this is just the, oh, the, just so the way out. Yeah. Just, you know, the collapse. What, what are manifestations of the The collapse of public education. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we can be poor, we can, you know, be struggling, but at least we can have an education, a culture, you know, where people are singing the folk songs, of different cultures. I mean, you know, the feeding of the soul, the feeding of the mind, the feeding of what is human in us is absent in this society. And, and a lot of it is the failure of these empty intellectuals and narcissistic academics, you know, who are not worth, um, anything i mean they're worthless they're parasites mm -hmm. and complete parasites mm -hmm. i'm often reminded at temple they prefer to teach meek mills than web du bois now you tell me who was in charge of that <laughs> from top to bottom <laughs> yeah you know it's a thing like you know i'd rather be poor and know than to be rich and spiritually dead that is on the verge of suicide, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think when we we often talk about children, and I think the fact that so many people are depressed, or so many children, or even adults are depressed in this country, because people don't, like one, people don't feel like they can be part or create change 
And I think there's also a cynicism towards ideas such as unity and friendship. Yeah. Like that's so, I think just thinking about kind of myself and people around me, um, like as people get older, they, there's more of a cynicism towards like what unity means or what friendship means or even brotherhood. Um, and that extends to not just like individual human inter interactions, but also between nations where whenever there is a sign of potential friendship or unity, um, that isn't just based on kind of this Western model of exploitation or just using one another, people are so cynical about it. Um, and I think what's so important about Du Bois is that he doesn't, like he always finds hope in these interactions where it's not um, like whether it's between Russia and America, which he titles um, the book, but also um, Doc, you were saying before that Du Bois visits China in 1959. Um, and he writes this article called The Vast Miracle of China Today. Um, and yeah, like there's, there are people write about this trip in such title, a- huh? <laughs> The title. The title is just so intriguing. Right, right. And people write about his trip in such a cynical way where it's that Du Bois was using China or China was using Du Bois. But actually when you get to the substance of his writing and why, why um, the Chinese folk had invited him, you can see principles such as peace um, and friendship emerge where he goes to these different universities and talks about kind of similar ideas that he talks about uh, pertaining to Russia, where it's that there's such, there is a miracle happening in China, which is not in just its infrastructure or building, but rather like the people, like the people he sees bustling on the streets. Um, yeah, and I think that's what we need in such a times when, in these times when people don't have hope or because they feel isolated from the world. Um, but yeah. Uh, some comments. Uh, Do Byun writes, uh, Michelle had read this part uh, and he's quoting, even Lenin had doubted if a single socialist agricultural state could alone in a capitalistic industrial world. And Trotsky had insisted that the Russian revolution could only succeed if it was a prelude to a European uprising. Oh, one sec. Um, only Stalin slowly, but with, uh, Tr and Trotsky had consisted that the Russian revolution could only succeed if it was a prelude to a European uprising. Only Stalin, slowly but with the ear to the ground, came to believe that Russia not only could, but must prepare long to stand alone in the world as a socialist state, end quote. We see bravery and principled strength in Stalin for believing that Russia must stand for the rest of the world and also humility in his capacity to be listening to the masses of Russia to know that Russia could stand. Um, Caleb's writes, the comparison of Trotsky and Stalin is really interesting, especially considering Trotsky's shortcomings and their radically different stances on the potential of a new society following the Russian revolution. <clears throat> Excuse me. The years following the revolution really embodies the ideas of a new conception of culture, a foundation of mass participation in civilization. During this period, I believe there was a flourishing in the arts, especially in design, photography, and film. Mm -hmm. This period was stunningly creative and filled with new advances in film that depicted the struggles of the masses as they worked together to build a new society. Russia at the time was also establishing new techniques and methods in filmmaking 
that further define film as an art form. Um, and then uh, uh, Jeremiah, yeah, sure. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Three, things, three great, uh, they were not on the same level. There was a Soviet cultural revolution, Lunacharsky, Gorky and others. It was a real cultural revolution, uh, which uh, grounded art in the masses. The other was the Bauhaus movement in Germany. You know, architecture, film, and other things, which was really, in a lot of ways, a communist movement. Uh, and third, there was the uh, Harlem Renaissance uh, here in this country. So I think each of them contributed or helped helps us to understand what we might uh, put forward in this 2020 period, the 1900 years later, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, the Bauhaus movement and the cultural revolution uh, that was undergirding the uh, October revolution. And as Caleb said, film, design, um, uh, uh, painting, Oh, well, by the way, theater. Theater was yeah. a big part too. I'm sorry. The theater and I think ballet also. Ballet, yes. Damn. Opera, mm -hmm. um, literature as well, coming out of the Soviet Union. Even in some of the years after, prior to the 1917 revolution, mm -hmm. as well as afterwards. Um, I have a question. Would you would you call that like a like a world historic sort of cultural? I mean, just a, the, just it's so interesting that you put those three together. You know, um, is that sort of like a world historical cultural movement toward a, a type of like a, a grounded in the people? I mean, I know the Harlem Renaissance, you know, was grounded in this type of uh, or it, well, it was the people. Well, one thing that they all had in common, everyone was horrified by what they saw in World War One, and the inhumanity of all of that. And so it was uh, the Bauhaus and the Harlem Renaissance, and I'm certain the Soviet Cultural Revolution were protests against, first of all, art that didn't take a political stance. And that's why Du Bois wrote the thing, The Criterion of Negro Art, which is a beautiful essay. But the thing is, against this idea of art for art's sake and, and so on. So I think that's one thing. Uh, other, other than I don't know all of the connections. You know, like Claude McKay, Harlem Renaissance poet, activist, is also a communist, also goes to the Soviet Union. I'm certain that the Bauhaus artists uh, were back and forth in the Soviet Union and the Soviet artists were in Germany and other places. Okay, I see what you're saying. Oh no, could it be interpreted in light of like a peace movement? I guess the, the Harlem Renaissance. Just oh, yeah. Yeah, well that was, I think that was a factor in it, yeah. Okay. I was gonna say also in India, you have the Indian People's Theater, you have um, the Progressive Writers Association and uh, I think it's definitely an outpouring of, I mean, with the freedom struggle and the, mm -hmm. um, the Soviet uh, cultural revolution, mm -hmm. there's a real kinship, just sharing this common concept of like 
human beings as having potential and humanism. And I actually followed your advice, Doc, and I mean, I started reading um, Les Miserables, and just that humanism <laughs> is so, I mean, but just it's the, the humanism, it's like nothing you ever read today. Like, if there's a poor person who's suffering, we need this book. You know, yeah. the author writes, we need this story. And um, yeah. it's so absent, like uh, Emily was saying, 1984. And we just were so familiar with the literature and culture of pessimism. And we're taught that that's high art. But there's this whole other cultural movement in the world based on an optimism on, on, and faith in people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, apparently, you know, uh, uh, speaking of Les Mis, apparently, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the Supreme Leader of Iran, said that book is a miracle. I can see that. I highly recommends. <laughs> uh, interestingly, but also I was uh, uh, going back to this period. Um, uh, interesting that because like Doc was saying that World War One was so disastrous and uh, for people that even if you look at the Hollywood films of that time, like this movie, All Quiet on the Western Front is a pretty interesting movie. I mean, it's kind of it'd be difficult to imagine it being made today, but like basically it's a portrayal film version of this novel, which is written by a German uh, writer about uh, the experiences of German soldiers during World War One, and basically is an anti-war film. And so, but then Hollywood made a version of it and it was interesting because it showed the enemy's side, like the German side during the war and mm -hmm. how war was terrible. And that's just one of many examples of these uh, anti-war and uh, also because of the communist influence, more socialist oriented films made in early Hollywood, although then there were also struggles and things. So you definitely know, there's a lot of interesting culture. from that. And Charlie Chaplin, mm -hmm. the great satirist, the great ironist, uh, the great actor who was kicked out of this country during McCarthyism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of his progressive uh, activism, you know? So it was, yeah. And, and the silent film, of course, I think I still prefer silent films these days <laughs> over all this talking and, and profiling. <laughs> but anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, some more comments. Uh, Jeremiah Kim writes, uh, what Doc said about Du Bois's revolutionary ideology made me realize that by explaining the social science, moral character, and leadership of Lenin and Stalin in this chapter, Du Bois also clarifies a method for revolutionary action that goes with his civilizational worldview. Um, Max Gaeta writes, a passage from page 60. Uh, quoting Du Bois, but Lenin was not the sort of modern sociologist who boasted of his science and did nothing to discover its laws. He therefore studied not only the written word of history and economics, but the actual current deeds of living men. He knew the lives of the masses. It was this pragmatic approach to human action, either in government or revolution, that set Lenin apart from and above his followers and contemporaries and explained his life, end quote. This quote really speaks to the similarities between Lenin and Du Bois in their approach to social science and working to understand what is needed to progress humanity forward. Lenin embodies this, the type of revolutionary that listens to the needs and aspirations of the masses first and then carries out policies accordingly rather than blindly attempting to apply Marxian theory in an effort to keep the revolution pure as Trotsky imagined it. 
It is no wonder that so many academics and leftists who are completely disconnected from the people look to Trotsky first rather than Lenin or Stalin. Yeah. Or Du Bois. Yes. Uh, Emil writes, uh, Paul Robeson was asked by people who are sympathetic to his fight against Jim Crow policies, but what has Russia ever done for the Negroes? To this, he responded, the Soviet Union's very existence, its example before the world of abolishing all discrimination based on color or nationality, its fight in every arena of world conflict for genuine democracy and for peace. This has given us Negroes the chance for achieving our complete liberation within our own lifetime, within this generation. Where would your son be? Where would your sweetheart be? Where would you be but for Stalingrad? <laughs> You know what he's saying when he says Stalingrad, right? That's the great battle where the Soviet, the Red Army, defeated the Nazi army and then began to push back, uh, pushing them back to Germany. Right. It also reminds me of uh, in the uh, House Un-American Activities uh, Committee testimony that Robeson gave where they were trying, going back to this thing of how they try to equate uh, fascism and communism, Robeson basically said, uh, you know, he asked, how can you say, how can you make that equation between fascism and communism? Because every single place I've visited, the people buried there who died fighting fascism were all communists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Caleb writes, I agree with this. I think Marxian theory gets invoked a lot in academia as a way to analyze culture or some social phenomenon while ignoring any of its political content. Academics love to mention Marx all the time, but never Lenin or Du Bois. Yep. So it's not really Marx, it's a Marx for them. Mm -hmm. You know, remember that uh, distinction, a thing uh, for itself, a thing mm -hmm. in itself mm -hmm. and a thing for humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, a theory that is just a, a vehicle for empty academics is uh, turns against what its initial purposes were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a crucial distinction. Yeah. You know, I, I, can, I sometimes ask myself, you know, how do you guys survive these professors? <laughs> you know, for whom ideas are mere abstractions or things in themselves. Um, you know, kind of, well, I won't get it. I was talking about Kant, the thing for us, the thing for humanity, um, as opposed to the thing in itself. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is part of the, uh, the positive thing about Kant, Kant's uh, theory of knowledge to the extent that a thing becomes a thing for us, it becomes knowable. Mm. And that's, that's Du Bois. That's why the participation in history, the participation in society makes society knowable. Um, and, and the knowing society is an all society project or enterprise. It's not just for the sociologists, or the people with PhDs. Leaving the world up to them is like, you know, um, allowing the um, 
how would you say the, the foxes to guard the chicken house? <laughs> they don't have good intentions. <laughs> Cats studying society that don't like people. Oh, I became a sociologist because I don't want to be around a lot of people. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so. Right. Um, well, that's it for comments right now. <clears throat> it's almost two o'clock, so. What did you say, time for lunch? Uh, <laughs> 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 a good break, it's a good breaking point. <laughs> good end point. It's very so we're going to do chapter four next week. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good plan. Yeah. Chapter four, continue chapter yeah. four. I think it gets more into the he gets more into Trotsky and Stalin yeah. as well yeah. as other things in that chapter. And, and really, again, his vision of China mm -hmm. he doesn't separate the Russian Revolution from Asia, you know, and that is. That gives it strength and possibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think by next week, we may have to talk a little bit about current U.S. politics with January 6th, the Electoral College meeting and uh, whatever may emerge from that. Yeah, yeah. Crisis of U.S. democracy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all right. So uh, again, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Everybody should have access to the PDF um, in the link. And uh, we'll help you if you'd like to read ahead for next week. And if you have any issues with that, you can get in touch with us via Facebook or email. And uh, see everybody next week, same time.